2: We are learning more information about how the January 6th attack on the Capitol unfolded. A new investigation by The Washington Post shows the insurrection, quote, was neither a spontaneous act nor an isolated event. The report takes a deep dive into the before, during, and after of the attack. Some of The Washington Post's key findings are that law enforcement did not respond with urgency and that former President Trump's attacks have led to escalating threats of violence. For more on this, I want to bring in Donnell Harvin. He is a senior homeland security researcher at Rand Corporation, as well as a former chief of homeland security and intelligence for the District of Columbia. Welcome, Danelle. Great to have you with us. So the Washington Post investigation says you and your team, quote, had spotted increasing signs that supporters of President Donald Trump were planning violence when Congress met to formalize the Electoral College vote. But federal law enforcement agencies did not seem to share this sense of urgency, end quote. So why do you think that was? Why was there a lack of urgency on the part of the law enforcement agencies?
3: Well, Thank you for having me on. Um, What what we generally see in the intelligence space is law enforcement looking for specific and credible threats. Um, And throughout the uh, days and weeks leading up to January 6th, we saw a lot of information, uh, but none of it was specific and credible, and that's what they need to go uh, to take action. Um, what concerned us, however, was that there was a vast amount of uh, threat information that was being purveyed online uh, from actors in places that we'd never seen before.
2: And so the Washington Post report goes on to say that you even went as far as, quote, asking the city's health department to convene a call of D.C. area hospitals and urge them to prepare for a mass casualty event. So how did you feel when you watched these events unfolding on January 6th, knowing what you had known beforehand?
3: Well, I mean, we can't take comfort in, in, in knowing that um, in, in predicting what was going to happen. Um, it was unfortunate. Uh, we were prepared in the, in the city of the District of Columbia um, across the entire government enterprise, um, and we were hoping that our federal partners would be prepared as well. Um, we made sure that their healthcare partners and all our private sector partners were aware, um, and the word was put out across the entire D.C. government of what was coming, um, and unfortunately, our predictions came true. Um, and, and we saw this unfold. We had staff in the field uh, we had staff embedded with the Capitol. Um, we saw this unfold in front of our eyes, and 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 we were very just like many Americans, we were shocked and, and dismayed.
2: And so, how do you think the insurrection could have unfolded differently if law enforcement had acted more on these warning signs that that you noted?
3: Yeah, I can't I can't uh, hypothesize what would have happened uh, if things would change. I I can tell you that. Um, had the District of Columbia, uh, specifically the local law enforcement, the, the DC Police, Metropolitan Police, had not been there and prepared, um, things could have been a lot worse at the Capitol. Uh, fortunately, um, we had all of our intelligence was solid. Um, we had all of our stakeholders and partners that reached out to. Uh, we prepared them, um, and I think things could have been a lot worse. Um, had, had certain preparations not taken. Um, what, what occurred inside the Capitol and in the inner the, in workings of uh, the Capitol Police and, and how they operate is, is really uh, still still being examined. So hopefully, we'll get good clear, clarity on what actually occurred and what didn't happen. Um, but the intelligence was sound. It was shared. Um, and, and we were ready, at least from, from the local side.
2: Are you following the events of the January 6th Commission? Do you think that they're, you know, doing their best to get at the heart of the matter?
3: I think they are, and I think that there needs to be a full autopsy of what happened. Um, We can't let this happen again. Um, I also don't want uh, the viewers and the American uh, public to to be stuck on January 6th. January 6th was, in in my professional opinion, was a symptom of something that's large larger than what happened on that day. Uh, The conditions that allowed January 6th to happen uh, still exist uh, in this country, missing disinformation, uh, uh, a a breakdown of of public trust and public institutions and government. Um, And a lot of those conditions still exist. So um, to prevent the next January 6th, we need to uh, do a full analysis of what happened on January 6th, but we shouldn't get stuck there.
2: And do you fear that there, like you said, that the conditions still exist? Do you fear that something like this, a violent event event like this one, uh, could happen again?
3: Absolutely. I mean, nothing's really changed Mm -hmm. uh, from January 6th, save a few hundred people um, being prosecuted um, and charged. Um, To to be quite honest with you, after January 6th, in the intelligence space— we saw many, many people online uh, lamenting that they were not there um, on January 6th and that things would have gone differently had they been there. Uh, And so what you see or what you saw on January 6th was a large group of individuals, um, but there's many, many more who are like-minded. Um, and what we have to start doing in this country is getting to a place where we can start de-radicalizing ourselves um, and healing. Uh, and that's not going to happen um, in, until we do a full autopsy of what happened on January 6th, all the all the circumstances that surrounded that uh, and start addressing um, what 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 got us to this point as Americans.
2: Well, Donnell Harvin, thank you so much for joining uh, uh, joining us and sharing your insight into that horrific day. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you very much.
4: Some in law enforcement and the intelligence community also saw this threat, but I've been told that their concerns were rejected by the White House.
0: Among the counterterrorism community, we took it very seriously, but you really do need that presidential level leadership saying, this is a threat, we are going to use all of our tools to go after this threat. That never happened under Trump.
4: Elizabeth Newman was one of the top counterterrorism officials in the Trump administration. She says she tried to warn the White House about the rising threat of far-right extremists. But the president and his allies claim the real threat was from Black Lives Matter and Antifa.
0: Does Antifa exist? It's not an organization, it's a movement. You have groups of people that associate with them do they show up at protests sure is it a massive conspiracy to overthrow the u.s. government and kill a lot of people no you know where that is it's on the right it's in the white supremacist movement it's in the anti-government militia movement it's in the boogaloo boy movement it's not in the anti-fascist movement
4: Um, newman says she watched with alarm as president trump didn't just ignore the threat of domestic extremism He incited it.
0: He attacked the governor of Michigan. He attacked the governor of Virginia for their pandemic mitigation measures and was using rhetoric like you got to take your your state back. You got to push back against your governor. Now, not all of them are going to radicalize. Not all of them are going to commit an act of violence. But that is a huge pool of people to be vulnerable. Meanwhile, we have... Active white supremacist organizations, neo-Nazis, um, we have a Boogaloo Boys movement looking for uh, ways to attack our country, ways to commit acts of violence.
4: Newman resigned in frustration from DHS in April 2020. By October, her warnings seemed to be coming true. Police and federal agents arrested 14 militia members and charged them in connection with a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, try her in their own court, and potentially execute her for treason.
1: We've had a big problem with uh, the young, a woman governor from, you know who I'm talking about, from Michigan.
4: For months, Trump had been railing against the governor and her COVID restrictions. And even after the plot was revealed, his attacks continued.
1: to get your governor to open up your state okay? Lock them all
4: up. <laughs> This anger at the governor had been boiling since the spring when militias rallied at the state capitol. According to the FBI, it was here that the kidnapping plot first began to coalesce.
1: Egged
4: on by President Trump. Who had tweeted Liberate Michigan, heavily armed militia members stormed the Capitol building. With chance of tyranny and Heil Whitmer, they confronted lawmakers. Looking back, it seems like a precursor to what would happen at the US Capitol. Armed protesters made it into the legislator's gallery and disrupted the session. Representative Sarah Anthony was there that day.
2: April
5: 30th, when, you know, armed gunmen stormed the Capitol building, it's probably the most terrifying thing that I've ever experienced in my life.
6: Filled. This lobby was filled.
0: All around, um, up these steps is where,
5: you know, we had hundreds of people.
4: And most of them were armed? Oh, absolutely.
7: Wow.
5: Absolutely When we got word that they were coming into the building, you know, just sheer fear um, went through my body. And I can tell you that other legislators on both sides of the aisle were very fearful as well. I was on the floor and I missed three calls from my mom. She was not sure if her daughter was going to make it home alive.
4: She when we spoke, rally- the attack in Washington, D.C. was still months away. But Anthony was already worried where things might be heading next.
5: 2020 has been building up. It's been a slow fire. It's like a powder keg. I don't know when that explosion's going to happen or what form it's going to take. The
3: Catherine
1: Massey
8: book club at the context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date thursday december 28 2023 so i have been told our final book club installment for the 2023 calendar year important for this book specifically because do you know what? Next Thursday it won't just be a new year. January 24 next Thursday will be specifically January 4. Metronome. Context of white supremacy. We are reading Harry Dunn's Standing My Ground. Second audio installment uh, we're picking up right at the beginning of chapter three for this week the insurrection part one the audio installments that we heard at the beginning the first report uh, was from CBS they spoke with Donnell Harvin uh, he works with the Rand Corporation they were talking about the advanced warnings that something was afoot something criminal violent, connected to the 2020 elections and the Boogaloo Boys and all of that and that the police, Capitol Police enforcement officers in the DC area ignored this information do we think that would have been the case if this had been Negro identity extremists plotting, mad missing Obama The second audio that we heard was a snippet from the documentary American Insurrection featuring former Cal's guest, A.C. Thompson. Now, I will take one moment. We heard from A.C. Thompson the first time around way back in 2009. Literally, the cows had been back on the air for a couple of weeks, and we had him on to talk about his investigative work into white vigilante violence during Hurricane Katrina where at least 11 black males shot and killed during everything that happened in New Orleans with Katrina. Dr. Welsing talked about connecting the dots. A.C. Thompson for ProPublica has since... Reported on white violence in Charlottesville January 6th. Like he's had a number of different reports uh, talking about white people practicing racism, violence in this part of the world. All of that is on the same continuum. This did not just start with Heather Hare uh, in Charlottesville in terms of white people practicing racism and white people utilizing violence when they don't get their way. How much time do we have? But that was one because he he even makes an effort to kind of do a go back and put this all in context, but he leaves Hurricane Katrina out. That's recent history, and it's the exact same conduct. Anyway, within that report, you hear the same theme build up this was known white people had been misbehaving in a violent criminal manner 2020 with the pandemic and the rona and all that leading up to january 6 2021 now importantly i hadn't seen american insurrection before we started reading this book i did not i knew all about governor gretchen whitmer and they're gonna kidnap her and the boogaloo hey a plus for the cows and gus we talked about that relentlessly in 2020 and i talked about that as a component of white supremacy racism is no way if al sharpton was going to kidnap the governor any of you all uh, you'd have been under the jail they wouldn't have needed multiple trials we paid attention to all of that as it was happening i did not see When they went to attack the cat, well, I do remember them having rallies and such, but I don't remember it being as violent as what they showed when they spoke with Michigan State Representative Sarah Anthony, who is a black female, lovely black female at that. And she said that that was the most frightening experience of her life and that she missed voice messages from her mother, black mother, because she didn't her mom didn't know if she was still alive or not. And they showed all of these armed... I had to watch that footage about five times... Because I was like, wait a minute... Isn't that the Capitol? That's when they started... I kept going like, no, no, no... This is the, And they said, no... This was six months before the Capitol... And in Michigan, no less... It looked exactly the same... The racial demographics... Individuals classified as white... And the long guns and chant Heil Hitler tyranny. You're not gonna make me where I'm at. What did I say, what did I say, what I say, white defiance. But it looked exactly like Washington, DC and J I I was absolutely floored. All of that I think is the context that we need to move to chapter three. There was a lot of notice. And it seems that a lot of white people chose to ignore. Why would that be? Catherine Massey Book Club. Harry Dunn. Standing my ground. Audio segment one. Who's
9: America?
7: Chapter 3, The Insurrection, Part 1. In the days leading up to January 6th, most of Washington had become eerily quiet. That was especially true at the Capitol. Normally, the buildings and the buildings around it would have been buzzing with activity. We have thousands of people working inside and outside of the Capitol. U.S. representatives and senators and their staffs maintenance workers, cafeteria workers, the people who run the visitor center, the tourist shops, and hundreds of Capitol Police officers. In addition, there are hundreds of people in and out during the day, tourists, lobbyists, reporters, people testifying before congressional panels, and citizens who arrive at the Capitol to talk to their local legislator. But over the previous weeks, activity had slowed dramatically. We were still in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Capitol had pretty much shut down. Tours were halted and legislators and their staff were mostly working remotely. It was the same for other federal departments and most city workers. Most non-residents don't realize it, but DC is pretty much a company town. About one in three people in the city worked for the federal government or a federal contractor. That's a lot of people not on the street. In addition to the Capitol, All the other tourist attractions were closed. Nobody was coming to visit the Air and Space Museum, the African American Museum, the Portrait Gallery, the American Indian Museum, the Museum of Natural History, the Zoo, or any of the other Smithsonian sites. They weren't coming for the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, or the Vietnam Veterans Memorial either. There's a lot to visit, and all those exhibits were shut down at the height of the pandemic. So D.C. was empty of thousands of people who come here every month. On top of that, most of the city government was shut down, as were most of the restaurants, coffee shops, movie theaters, and other things that residents support. I enjoyed the silence. For months, the streets were almost deserted during my morning commute. That was particularly true in the winter because it was dark when I started rolling toward work at 6.15 in the morning. For months, there had been virtually no traffic, But as I was coming down North Capitol Street on January 6th, there were people everywhere. Everybody was walking around aimlessly. There was another group walking down Independence Avenue with their flags. I could see Trump flags, MAGA flags, and American flags. I thought, they are starting early. It was cold, near freezing. The night before had been around 30 degrees, and it was still early in the day, so the temperature hadn't risen much above that. I arrived at the Capitol at my normal time, 6.45 a.m., maybe 6.50 a.m., with plenty of time to spare before a 7 a.m. briefing. Under normal circumstances, the officers on my shift met each morning in a large room for a joint briefing. But these weren't normal circumstances. The first COVID-19 vaccine hadn't been released until a month earlier, on December 11th, which meant very few Americans, particularly Capitol Police officers, had been vaccinated. We were all vulnerable to a potentially deadly disease. We halted the practice of joint meetings for months to avoid huge numbers of officers contracting COVID-19. January 6th was different. For one thing, anytime the Vice President comes to the Capitol, it's a big deal. Not only was Vice President Mike Pence going to be there, but all the legislators were returning to certify the 2020 presidential election. So we were again providing security for hundreds of people who hadn't been in the building for a while. Second, we were expecting a large demonstration. That day, we met in a large auditorium. It's the same auditorium tourists sit in when they begin their tours at the Capitol. There's a huge movie screen in the front of the room and visitors see a film about our nation's founding before they're taken on the rest of the tour. Our supervisor read the roll and officers looked at the schedule for their assignments. Commanders told us they expected what we call First Amendment arrest. Demonstrators who violated the rules spelled out in their permits. We went over logistics, who the overall commander would be, who the field lieutenants would be, and who would be responsible for possible arrest. They told us how many platoons of the Civil Disturbance Unit would be activated. The Civil Disturbance Unit is our version of the military's quick reaction force. They are like a strike force made up of Capitol Police officers that are deployed to quickly resolve special situations. They are the unit we depend on to handle violent crowds. We used them when a handful of demonstrators got rowdy at Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017. In addition to their training, they're especially equipped to deal with hand-to-hand fighting. They have special armaments. They wear special bullet and knife-proof vests that protect against blunt force objects like a baseball bat. They wear shin guards, thigh guards, and shoulder and arm protectors. They have helmets with a clear, pull-down shield, and they carry special elongated batons. During demonstrations, they gear up and hang back inside the Capitol, ready for when we need them. They don't appear with us so as not to antagonize the demonstrators. Having that kind of show and force insinuates we think the peaceful demonstrations are prone to violence. Imagine demonstrating to save the environment if you got a bunch of armored-up police staring down at you. Instead, the civil disturbance unit is ready to go and pounces only at the moment they are needed. They deal with the situation and return to their duty station inside. It is pretty rare they are called to respond, but they are ready, just in case. Two things happened to me on January 6th that, in hindsight, I can't explain. One, I saw during our briefing... The other, I learned days after the insurrection. That morning, after we had been given our guidance for the day, our supervisors told us to head over to the property area to pick up riot helmets. They had arranged Capitol Police cars and buses for some of us to go over to the property room to pick up helmets for our fellow officers. There would be a group of four or five vehicles at a time. I was assigned to one of the teams to retrieve helmets. When I got to the property room, I went to the counter and said, I'm here to pick up helmets for the first responders unit. The officer behind the counter disappeared for a minute or two and came back with a bunch of cardboard boxes. Inside were what looked like brand new helmets. They were black with a see-through shield on the front that could be raised and lowered. The officer put the boxes on a dolly and I took them back to the van. My group bought a dozen or so helmets to the station area in the basement of the Capitol where officers could pick them up. So here's what's strange about that. In my then 12-plus years with the Capitol Police, we had never been told to pick up riot helmets for an event. Never. Never. Ever. And we've handled some very big and sometimes boisterous events. We didn't wear them during the Tea Party March in 2009 that I told you about earlier. The crowd for that demonstration was estimated at about 75,000 people. It was a pretty rowdy crowd, too. They were cursing and yelling and chanting some pretty ugly stuff. The country was in a recession. People were losing their jobs. Unemployment was going up and people were blaming it on Washington and Barack Obama. They had pictures of Obama painted up to look like the Joker in Batman and the rhetoric was off the wall. Still, nobody suggested helmets for that event. In 2013, about 35,000 people marched to the White House for the Forward on Climate demonstration. That was an orderly crowd, but still, it was fairly large. We didn't wear helmets then. We never wore them during the annual Right to Life events, which were always around 50,000 people. We didn't wear them during the Second Million Man March in 2015, another huge crowd. We didn't wear them during the 2017 Women's March, the day after Trump's inauguration, and that was more than 400,000 people. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that handing out helmets to us for the first time meant somebody in our command structure knew this was going to be a violent crowd and that we might come under attack. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest that somebody in our command structure even had an inkling that the crowd was going to try to breach the Capitol. None of our officers on the front line had any indication that the rioters would attack us and then try to make their way into the Capitol. I just don't understand why on that particular day, For that event, the first responder unit issued helmets for the first time ever to my knowledge. I'd like to know why, that's all. The second incident happened to the civil disturbance units that morning. I was told that on the morning of January 6th, at least one platoon, maybe more, was ordered not to wear their protective gear that day. They were told by their supervisors that they would not be a backup unit for us when things got out of hand. Instead, they were ordered to put their gear in a location outside the Capitol, and if they needed it, they would sprint to the location, gear up, and then join the fight. In the meantime, they were told to assume positions on the perimeter with the rest of us, without their protective gear. By the way, they were never able to reach their equipment that day. Again, again, I have no idea why this order was given. I'm not trying to say somebody intentionally tried to make us weaker, but that order did. Anytime a unit is told to be prepared for battle, but with less equipment than it normally has, they are weaker. Again, I'm just asking why. I picked out my riot helmet and assumed my post on the east side of the Capitol about 9.30 a.m. From where I stood, I looked directly at the Supreme Court building and just to the right of the Library of Congress. I was armed with my M4 carbine. The helmet was big. To give you a sense of the size, it was too big to fit in my locker. I didn't think I needed it. I placed it on a stand at my duty post and pretty much forgot about it. Not long after I took up my post, I got a text. A friend took a screen grab of something she saw on social media and sent it. I read it and chuckled. The caption for the message read, January 6, Rally Point, Lincoln Park. The objective, it said, was the Capitol, misspelled. It continued with, Trump has given us marching orders and to keep your guns hidden. It urged people to bring your trauma kits and gas masks to link up early in the day in six to 12-man teams and indicated there would be a time to arm up. I pretty much shrugged it off. Nobody had ever breached the Capitol. I thought, and nobody was going to try. Looking back now, that text my friend sent me seems to have foreshadowed what happened later. At the time though, we had not received any threat warnings from our chain of command. So I had no reason to believe that violence was headed our way. As the morning progressed, the crowd on the east side started growing bigger and more animated. A large crowd isn't necessarily a red flag for us. I have been on duty for much larger crowds than we had that day. On the east side of the Capitol, the crowd was spread out and sort of milling around. Mixed in with them were members of the Proud Boys. You could identify them by their orange pullover hats. The Proud Boys are in essence an all-male fascist street gang that promotes violence. They are so heinous that they have been banned from most social networks, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. They are also strong Trump supporters and Trump tacitly supports them. After an anti-racism protester, Heather Heyer, was killed in 2017 by a neo-Nazi at a white supremacist rally that the Proud Boys helped organize. Trump lamented her death by saying, there were good people on both sides. Trump was in his first year of office. He didn't owe any allegiance then to the Proud Boys the neo-Nazis, or the other racists and anti-Semites? How can there be good people on both sides when one side chanted racist and vile slogans and then ran a woman over who was peacefully protesting their bigotry? Years later, when Trump was asked to specifically denounce the Proud Boys during his 2020 presidential debate with Joe Biden, Trump responded, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. On January 6th, as I looked out at the people in front of me, Trump flags dotted the crowd, and many people were chanting slogans like, Stop the steal and we want Trump. I'd seen loud crowds, I'd seen shouting crowds. This was not unusual. The demonstration was still peaceful, just Americans exercising their rights. Nothing particularly alarming. I couldn't hear or see the other rally, but I knew Donald Trump was about a mile away at the ellipse, continuing to spread his lies about a stolen election. The crowd was there in the first place because of Trump. After coming out of a six-hour meeting with his advisors and being told by everybody in the room that he had lost the 2020 presidential election, Trump tweeted to his followers, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Another lie. Sometimes it feels as though when Trump's lips are moving, he's lying. This was at 1.42 a.m. on December 19th, when most sane people were sleeping unless their job required them to be up. Big protests in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, we'll be wild. He picked January 6th because he knew Congress was set to formally certify Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College that day. Earlier that afternoon, things began to heat up. First. All our units got a dispatch over the radios that we had an active 10-100 at the Republican National Committee nearby. A 10-100 is police code for a suspicious package, such as a potential bomb. The package did turn out to be a pipe bomb that was later safely detonated. That dispatch got my attention, and I started to get more concerned, especially because the crowds on the east front of the Capitol were continuing to grow. Around the same time, I started receiving reports on the radio about large crowd movements around the Capitol coming from the direction of the ellipse to both the west and east fronts of the Capitol. By then, Trump had finished his speech and had riled up his followers and sent them towards us. He filled them with some more lies about how Vice President Mike Pence had the ability to overturn the election. But the only way that can happen... It's if Mike Pence agrees to send it back, Trump told them. Mike Pence has to agree to send it back. In response, the crowds chanted, send it back, send it back. In the same speech, he told them their unlawful act of trying to overturn an election was actually legal and sanctioned by the Constitution. And think of what you're doing, he said. Let's say you don't do it. Somebody says, well, we have to obey the Constitution. And you are because you're protecting our country and you're protecting the Constitution. So you are. Later, he gave them their send-off. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, he said. The crowd chanted, fight for Trump, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and we're going to the Capitol. Trump finished his speech just after 1 o'clock that afternoon, but by 12.30, the crowd size began to surge. Then, I heard urgent radio calls for additional officers to respond to the west side of the Capitol. You could hear the desperation in the voice on our police radio. Demonstrators have breached the fence, the voice said. Now, it was obvious that there was an active threat to the Capitol. I strapped on a steel chest plate for protection and grabbed my M4 to answer the request for help on the west side of the Capitol. I scrambled down the long flight of marble steps that led to my post. I grabbed two cases of water from a nearby post. Based on the radio traffic, I knew officers would need it. I just didn't know how badly. I passed the north end of the Capitol on my way to the west side. Nothing there. When I got to the west side, I immediately saw the scaffolding for Joe Biden's presidential inauguration. It had already been set up for the ceremony, which was scheduled to be in that space exactly two weeks from that day. I looked down below to my right and I was stunned. What I saw was like a scene from a gladiator movie in what seemed like a sea of people. Capitol police officers and Metropolitan DC Police (MPD) officers were fighting desperately, hand to hand with rioters across the West Lawn. Until then, I had never seen anyone physically assault a Capitol Police officer or an MPD officer, let alone witness mass assaults against law enforcement officers. I could see riders hitting officers with flagpoles, sticks, and metal bike racks they had torn apart. They were throwing batteries, canned food, anything they could to hurt officers. You could hear the screaming and hollering as the battle raged on. Blood was streaming down officers' faces. They were yelling, grunting and trying to force the rioters back. Many of them were blinded and coughing after being doused with pepper spray, bear spray, and even WD-40. It was crazy. We used the water I brought to wash the irritant out of their eyes. And then when they were good enough, they went back into the fight. Everything was chaos and madness. Officers fighting with rioters, then getting relief. Officers headed back to the fight, then returning because they needed their eyes and skin flushed with water to wash off the spray. At some point, the radio blasted. Attention all units, the Capitol had been breached. The rioters went various places inside the building. I rushed into the Capitol with another officer. I can't remember his name. It's still hard to piece it all together. We first went to the basement on the Senate side because we heard that a DC police officer needed a defibrillator. After helping, I ran back to the West Terrace to help officers there. With people running around the Capitol, I knew I had to get back inside. I went through the West Side entrance and ran up the stairs to the crypt. The crypt is a relatively cramped, large circular room right on the first floor of the Capitol under the Capitol Rotunda. 40 large sandstone columns in the crypt support the floor of the rotunda above. It's not a big space, but it's the most traveled part of the Capitol because so many entrances and hallways intersect in that area. It's called the crypt, because that's where they planned to honor George Washington by burying him there. Washington had other plans, and his body remains at his home in Mount Vernon, Virginia, but it's still called the crypt. When I got there, I saw rioters who had invaded the Capitol, carrying a Confederate flag, a red MAGA flag, and a don't tread on me flag. I decided to stand my ground there, to prevent any rioters from heading down the stairs to the lower West Terrace entrance, because that was where officers were getting decontamination aid, and where they were particularly vulnerable. One bunch of assholes came by, and I warned them, don't go down there. One of them shouted, keep moving, patriots. Another fucker showed me what looked like a law enforcement badge. He told me, we're doing this for you. I didn't say anything, but I wanted to kick his ass. One idiot ran up on me like he was going to try to get past me and head down the stairs. I'm six feet seven, and I weigh 300 pounds. I hit that sucker and knocked him down. After a few minutes, I was relieved by other officers in the crypt. I say a few minutes because that's what it felt like, but in situations like January 6th, I find you lose sense of time. After the other officers arrived, I took off, running up a winding spiral staircase towards the speaker's lobby. Now I was on the same floor as the rotunda. I have no idea where, what little energy I had was coming from. I guess the adrenaline was pumping and keeping me going. You're not thinking, you're just reacting. You just go until you can't. As soon as I made it to the landing, I saw Special Agent David Lazarus. He was dressed in a business suit. Other people would never know his role. He was being hassled by some writers. Right across from where I was standing, I could read the sign above the door to an office in gold leaf and all capital letters, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. I'm guessing those idiots didn't see it. I also saw Capitol Police Officer Tanisha Ford at the top of another stairwell, just to the left of Pelosi's office. She was being harassed too. I immediately started talking to the rioters to distract them from Lazarus and Ford. I was thinking... Y'all come over and fuck with me. I was standing in the spot where the Oath Keepers would lie during their trial later and say they defended me. They didn't defend me. I told them like I told all the other rioters. Get the fuck out the building. I looked again and Lazarus was gone. Ford had also disappeared. I didn't know it until two days later, but while those assholes were hassling me, Lazarus snuck Pelosi's staff out of her office into to a safe space to another entrance. To this day, Pelosi and her staff greet me warmly whenever I see them because of my help. As these assholes turned to me, I saw that some of them were dressed like members of a militia group. I'm sorry, but they were assholes to me. Every time I think of them, I get angry. Anyway, they were dressed like militia members. They had on tactical vests, cargo pants, and body armor. By now, I was physically exhausted. It was also hard to breathe and see because of all the chemical spray in the air and on my clothes. More insurrectionists were pouring into the area by the speaker's lobby near the rotunda. Some of them wearing MAGA hats and shirts that read Trump 2020. I told them to get the fuck out the Capitol. No, no, man. This is our house, they yelled back. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Yeah, another said. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I keep politics out of my job. We have to. I can't deny my feelings about Donald Trump. I didn't like him when he was elected, and I think he was a terrible president. I think he's a terrible human being, but my opinion doesn't mean a thing when I'm doing my job. When Trump came to the Capitol, I was responsible for providing a secure environment. We all were. At Trump's State of the Union speeches, and at his inauguration, it was my job, all of our jobs, to keep him safe. I take my oath very seriously. That's how I'm able to do my job and protect people I fundamentally disagree with. That's true for all of us. That sounds simple. But I want you to think about the complete picture. Imagine... I'm a gay woman or man having to protect Congress people who I know don't like the fact that I am gay and would do everything in their power to take away my rights if they could. I'm a black person protecting some Congress people who I know are bigoted and racist and they're working to keep people like me from voting. I'm a pregnant officer who needs an abortion and I am protecting some Congress people who want to do everything they can to take away my right to control my body. You have to overlook that. It's literally putting country before self. Your personal politics have nothing to do with your job. But in this circumstance, I responded to the rioters. Well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That went over with a thud. Instead of getting them to acknowledge another person's humanity, it did just the opposite. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, You heard that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the whole crowd, I'm guessing there were about 20 of them, joined in screaming, Boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while I was wearing the uniform of a Capitol police officer. I was stunned for a moment, but I didn't dwell on it. I couldn't. Things were moving fast and there were other priorities. The weird thing is that in the chaos on January 6th, you could get disoriented, and I was guarding a stairwell that had no real importance. Still, I was trying to keep them from going down the stairwell, but people had already broken through below. So what was I protecting? They were fighting in the crypt, but I'm there saying, y'all not coming here. Fortunately, a riot squad came up from behind me and took over my position in that area. At this point, I was overwhelmed. I had pepper spray all over me. I was exhausted. I was dehydrated. The good thing was more units were coming into the area. I saw another tactical team. They weren't Capitol Police. I don't know who they were, but they were law enforcement, which meant we were getting a bit of help. I went into Pelosi's office to make sure nobody was there. It was empty, and it was ransacked. I saw a water cooler. I grabbed one of the speaker's fancy crystal glasses with her name on it and started downing water. I must have filled that glass eight or nine times. I also saw a large box of KN95 mask. I used one to replace the cloth mask I had over my face. It was soaked with pepper spray and useless by now. I grabbed two boxes of masks from the bigger box and stuck them in the side pockets of my cargo pants to hand out to other officers. I made my way to the Rotunda. The Rotunda is a large circular room that is the display room of the Capitol. It's the room that all the tourists visit when they come. It's filled with statues and ornate paintings that reflect and sometimes distort our nation's history. Inside the Rotunda, there was still fighting going on. Riders were spraying fire extinguishers into the air. The halon from the fire extinguisher stays in the air. When it mixes with the pepper spray, You're walking through a cloud of chemicals that fills the room and stays there. So, the whole room is a toxic mess. Most of the rioters were gone, but a few were left. I saw a couple officers and I said, let's get the rest of these motherfuckers out of here. There was a particular rioter wheezing against the wall. He couldn't breathe because he was overcome with pepper spray. He's saying, I can't breathe. An officer comes over to him and says, can I help you, sir? The officer gave him a bottle of water so he could wash off some of the shit that was irritating him. I ran over and snatched the bottle out of the dude's hand and threw it halfway across the rotunda. I said, fuck you, get the fuck out, and I pushed him. These were the fuckers who were beating my fellow officers. Fuck him, fuck all of them. That's where I had my near meltdown moment. By now, we were already three or four hours into the fight. I was exhausted. I sat under the huge painting at the top of the rotunda of George Washington, resigning his command to try to get myself together. Two other officers, Jonathan Sachs and Chaz Crawford, came over and sat down with me. I gave them a big hug. We're trying to catch our breath and support each other. You okay? Yeah, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. I hugged them again and told them that I loved them. Maybe it was the stress, but everything started pouring out. I love you, brother, I said to both of them. We were all trying to make sense of the madness. We talked about what we had been through so far. We talked about what had been happening. They told me about what they had gone through. I shared what had happened to me. We knew we were just taking a break before we went back into the battle. The building was still not clear. Below us, people were still fighting in the crypt. The Rotunda is the jewel of the capital. I sat there surrounded by historic paintings that I usually took for granted, massive portrayals of American history and mythology, the discovery of the Mississippi River, pilgrims preparing to leave Europe for the new world, the surrender of British General Lord Cornwallis during the Revolutionary War, the baptism of Pocahontas, and what's called the Apotheosis of Washington painted inside the dome at the very top. There are huge stone statues of Martin Luther King, activist Susan B. Anthony, abolitionist Lucretia Mott, and presidents Thomas Jefferson, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, and Gerald Ford. As I looked around, what was normally a pristine room had been trashed. Bottles of liquor, drugs, discarded weapons, and other crap strewn across the floor. The air was a foul, caustic, nearly unbreathable mist. Then, everything hit me all at once. I was crying, tears streaming down my face. I hadn't processed the N-word before. But now, everything was starting to sink in. The blood, the violence, the pain, the smells, the sounds, the threats, the attacks, the racism, the desecration of the nation's capital. And I started shouting, I couldn't help it. Bro, what the fuck just happened? Can you believe this shit? Fuck, what the fuck? What the fuck? What happened to our country? And then I started yelling the same thing over and over. Is this America? Is this America? Chapter four, the insurrection. Part 2. What the fuck is funny, I screamed. What the fuck are you laughing at? Where the fuck were you? We didn't have no fucking help. Fuck y'all. I have to admit, I lost it for a moment. But when they showed up the way they did, it just set me off. The rotunda was clear. And by now, we had Capitol Police officers posted so no one could get into the rotunda anymore. Then almost out of nowhere, in come these well-dressed guys in trench coats, hair slicked back, all upbeat. It's the FBI. We call them suits. They come in, all upbeat and loose. They were chatting us up. Hey guys, how's it going? How's the family? They were chuckling and laughing at something. We've been through hell, and we've got more to go through. And these assholes think something's funny? I started hollering at them. Fuck y'all. Fuck y'all. Where the fuck were you? I'm screaming away, and Chaz grabs me. Harry, Harry, he said. Captain Mendoza came over and gave me a hug. Captain Carnesha Mendoza is one of the many heroes of that day. She works out of our Special Operations Division. Part of her job is as a field commander of one of the Civil Disturbance Units. She was at home eating with her 10-year-old son before her 3 o'clock afternoon shift when she got a call from a captain at the Capitol about 1.30. We need help, he told her. Two months prior, Captain Mendoza and her unit had fought with hundreds of right-wing Trump supporters, including the Proud Boys, during the so-called Million MAGA March in front of the Supreme Court. The struggles were so fierce, she told U.S. senators later that she could barely move the following day. After the captain's call, Mendoza rushed down to the Capitol and worked with the Civil Disturbance Unit team to secure the rotunda. That's how I ran into her. When she hugged me, I was crying. I was mad, distraught, and confused all at once. I must have said fuck 200 times in 10 minutes. For a minute, nobody said a word. I realize now that I overreacted. I know those agents didn't mean a thing by it, they were just doing their job, but the stress and anguish of the moment just got to me. You, like so many people I've talked with about that day, are probably asking, why didn't they shoot the insurrectionists? It's a valid question. Yes, people outside the Capitol were threatening our lives and the lives of people we swore an oath to protect, but there are several reasons to why we didn't. To quickly dispel a myth, we were never told we could not fire our weapons. The subject actually never came up because none of us thought the people at the Capitol that day would actually attempt to breach our lines. It had never been done. Even in the most raucous demonstrations, I never imagined that I might open fire into a crowd at the Capitol. But here's the core of the issue. Who do you shoot? If you just start firing indiscriminately into the crowd, you are at risk of killing people who are unlawfully there, but who primarily are stupidly swept up in the moment. Yes, some people were there to physically harm us, but so many people weren't. They were violating the law, they were committing crimes. Should we have shot them? I don't want to shoot these people. I don't want to shoot anyone. None of us did. And you have to remember at our core is our oath to protect the people inside the Capitol, but we also are there to protect Americans outside the Capitol and their right to address their government, whether we agree with them or not. Finally, what if we had started firing and armed people in the crowd began firing at us? Then we would have had the potential for a real bloodbath with all kinds of innocent people being hurt. Fortunately, there was only one shot fired that day. Lieutenant Michael Byrd and other Capitol Police officers were protecting about 60 to 80 House members and staffers who were holed up inside an area of the Capitol. When Ashley Babbitt, a former member of the Air Force, and other insurrectionists tried to force their way into the room, Bird fired his weapon. Babbitt was killed. The fact that there was only one shot fired speaks to our level of training and the caliber of our officers. Things could have been much worse. They should be commended. I finally got myself together, at least emotionally, but I was still a mess. We all were, sweaty, exhausted. We were soaked in pepper spray and halon that kept reactivating and burning our eyes and skin. I ambled over to the George Washington statue, which is on the same side of the rotunda I came in. Officers Melissa Marshall, Wayne Gibson, Jimmy Kissinger, and about three other officers all gathered around. We all agreed we had to clear the rest of the building. Before we do that, I said, everybody, take out your cell phone and send your loved ones a text to let them know you're okay. Wayne Gibson patted his pockets and looked at me blankly. I don't know where my phone is, he said. No problem, I responded. You can use mine. I reached my phone and I didn't have mine either. I realized that I had left it at my post on the east side of the Capitol when everything kicked off. I know it sounds like making these phone calls, sending out those texts was a frivolous thing to do, considering everything that was going on. But Melissa thanks me for that moment all the time. It meant so much to her family. Jimmy Kissinger's mom and dad thanked me personally because they said there was no way Jimmy was going to make that call if I hadn't prompted him. I needed to let my family know I was okay. My mother, my father, my siblings, especially my daughter. So I started back to the east side of the building. I left the rotunda through the Senate side, swung quickly past the statue of President Andrew Jackson. As I was headed down the hall, I heard a dispatch on the radio. It said staffers were trapped in a room on the Senate side of the Capitol. I realized I was in that area. I checked in and told them I would respond to the call. I know Fox News and conspiracy idiots are spreading the lie that nothing really happened on January 6th. That people inside the Capitol were just gently strolling along. But there was real, real fear among the staffers and the people in that building. They were under threat and they knew it. They knew the rioters roaming through the building wanted to harm them. That was what the people inside the room I was responding to feared. The call coming from our dispatcher said that people were inside and they heard someone banging on the door but they couldn't determine if it was the police or rioters, so they wouldn't open the door. I didn't know how scared they were until I found out later that a good friend of mine, Sergeant Joe Pitts, had responded to their request for help. He was trying to get through the door to escort them to safety. They wouldn't open the door. They told him they wanted proof he wasn't a rioter. He slid his credentials under the door to prove he was legitimate. They responded, We're not opening the door because you could have stolen that off an officer. Fear. That's not made-up bullshit. That was real fear. I checked the room, and nobody was there. The entrance was a side door to a bigger office. As I swung back into the main corridor and headed down the hall, I passed the main door and looked up at the sign, Majority Leader. It was the Republican Senate Leader. Mitch McConnell's office. The people under siege at the Capitol that day didn't think the rioters were just there for Democrats. They believed they were there to harm anybody and everybody. The corridor I was on took me directly to the Senate chamber where the senators meet publicly to vote on bills and give speeches about pending legislation. I made a right turn as I approached the front door of the chamber and turned down the wide hall where the reporters and television crews grabbed senators for brief interviews before and after sessions. I hit the next corridor and turned left. I passed the area where Officer Eugene Goodman saw Senator Mitt Romney headed towards the rioters. Goodman deftly faked them into following him in the opposite direction and led them away from a man they most certainly would have harmed. I made it out the east side, and back to my post and the podium where my phone and helmet were sitting. As soon as I picked up the phone, I saw a video call coming from my daughter, Daphne. Daphne was 11. She was at home with her mother. She probably hadn't gotten home from school much earlier. I took my jacket sleeve and tried to clean off my face so she wouldn't see me looking all crazy when I turned on my video. I had forgotten that my jacket and most of my clothes were covered in pepper spray and other irritants. I was in pain, but I had to hold it in and take the call. Hey, baby, I said in my daddy voice, as though everything were normal. How are you? She didn't have a clue what was going on. She was telling me a little about her day. She was just talking. She was telling me how she made homemade ice cream. I was screaming inside from the pain, but I had to hold it together for her. Finally, I told her I had to get back to work. I'm sure her mom knew what was happening, so I sent her mama a message through my daughter that only her mother and I would truly understand. Gotta go, baby, I said in my upbeat voice. Tell mommy that daddy's okay. I hung up and immediately started screaming because my eyes and face were burning. I looked at my phone, and there were a million messages. There's no way I could respond to all those people individually so I decided to post something on Facebook. I'm pretty active on Facebook. It's how I keep up with many of my friends, particularly the ones from my days at James Madison University. I went to Facebook and posted, I'm okay. At that point, I had to get back into the fight. I headed back into the building through the Senate side to the house. I went immediately to the crypt. It was filled with people fighting. We were pushing, shoving, grabbing riders, and getting them out the building. We were shouting, fuck you, get out of here, get the fuck out. In some cases, we were pushing people into a bathroom and holding them there to deal with them later. This is the first time that day that I saw Sergeant Gannell. He and some other officers were trying to carry a woman to a place where our medical teams could attend to her and give her CPR. She was a big woman. She was dressed in ripped jeans and a blue hoodie. I grabbed what I could of her, but it was hard to get a grip. I still had my rifle on me, but I'm a pretty strong guy. So the four of us reconfigured our holds and kept going. We finally got her into a hallway and just outside the door of the Office of Representative Steny Hoyer, then the House Majority Leader. Officer Connor Rhodes immediately began CPR. I paused for a minute and noticed that a portrait of civil rights leader and longtime Congressman John Lewis had been ripped up and was lying on the ground. I had seen the photo before as I passed through the hall. It stood outside Hoyer's office. Hoyer put it there as a tribute to a true American hero, and he displayed it with Lewis's famous quote about getting into good trouble. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to stand up, speak up, speak out, and find a way to get in the way and get in trouble, it read. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. It was clear that the destruction of a photo of a black man had been targeted. None of the other things outside of Hoyer's office were touched. I later learned that the woman I carried was Roseanne Boyland. She was 34 and lived in Kennesaw, Georgia, a suburban community just northwest of Atlanta. Boyland was another of those tragic figures from the madness of that day. She was most likely dead when we grabbed her and desperately tried to get her to the paramedics. We were never able to revive her. The coroner ultimately ruled that she had been crushed to death by the mob fighting at one of the Capitol entrances. A friend who was with her that day told a television reporter that she was pinned to the ground when bodies of police and protesters pushed against each other and fell on her. Her friend said he put his arm under her to pull her out and then another guy fell on top of her. He said another man was walking on her, but it had been determined that Boylan was not trampled to death, but rather she died from an amphetamine overdose. Boylan had experienced her share of troubles early in life. She became addicted to drugs and had stacked up a series of drug arrests. She had been sober for several years and she was working to keep her life on track. She was attending an addiction group in Atlanta and helping her sister with her children by picking them up after school. Then she started listening to Trump's lies and crazy QAnon theories about him saving the country from Democrats and liberals who were kidnapping and abusing children, even to the point of drinking their blood. Boylan's family heard the wacky theories and tried to dissuade her, but she kept going. They just shook their heads. They loved her. She was family. What do you do? They begged her not to go to the Capitol. She promised them she would stand on the sideline and just offer visual support. But like so many people, she got caught up, and now she's dead. Dead for nothing. Her family blames her death on Trump for his lies and his call for people to come to Washington to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election so he could stay in power. And when they did that, they started receiving death threats from Trump followers. I headed back to the crypt. Much of the fighting had stopped. There were only a handful of people remaining there. We kept rounding people up and pushing them outside. I headed out a downstairs door. The rioters had written, murder the media on the door. When I stepped outside, I was immediately hit by the weather. It was cold as fuck. It was also dark, which struck me. I had been in the Capitol fighting, moving, helping, and dealing with so much that I had lost track of time. The last time I had been outside was to talk to my daughter that afternoon. Even though it was dark, the outside of the Capitol was lit like a scene from the aftermath of one of those disaster movies floodlights, police lights, spotlights. The parking lot was filled with cars from surrounding law enforcement agencies who had come to help. The Metropolitan Police Department, Prince George's County, U.S. Marshals, the FBI, the National Guard had taken up position, and helicopters could be heard overhead surveying the area. I linked up with other Capitol Police officers. We walked around surveying the damage and sharing notes. Lots of hugs. The damage was considerable. Windows were broken everywhere. The building was filled with trash. Doors and furniture were destroyed. I got a text from a buddy, Garrett. He was formerly with the Capitol Police, but he had moved on and was now working as a U.S. Marshal. He was there assisting in the investigation and securing the site. We caught up with each other. I went back inside the building and went into Statuary Hall. Statuary Hall is another large oval room. It is filled with statues that were donated by the states. Each state gets to have two statues displayed in the room, which actually used to be where Congress met when the country was much smaller. The room was filled with officers from the various units and law enforcement departments who had fought that day. Their eyes were glazed over. Nobody was talking. They were spent and just trying to recover. Some were propped against the statues. Others. Propped against each other. We spent a few more hours checking on each other. We sat around listening to other officers talk about their feelings and what had happened. I was listening, but I wasn't hearing much. The lights were on, but I just wasn't there. I was too busy trying to process my own feelings. I clocked out shortly after midnight. It was a 17 hour day. All of my friends will tell you that I love music. If I'm in my car, The music is playing. That night, I drove home in silence. I got to the house and opened the door to my backyard so Frosty, my pit bull boxer mix, could go outside. I walked around in a daze for a while, just standing there. Then I moved somewhere else in the house and just stood there for a while. I took off all my clothes. They were soaked with grime, sweat, and pepper spray. I immediately put them in the washing machine. I would get to them a day or two later. I picked up a glass to pour myself a drink. Instead, I grabbed a bottle of Weller Antique 107 and headed for the shower. There was about a third of the bottle of bourbon left. I stepped inside, bottle in hand, and turned on the water. The hot water felt good. It soothed the soreness of the bumps and bruises from that day. I just stood under the spray, drinking from the bottle. I started crying again. That's all I can remember from the rest of that night drinking in the shower and crying. Sobriety
8: would be best. Catherine Massey Book Club Context of White Supremacy number 605 313 5164 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate Number again, six oh five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail.com until justice at com Again, this is not the book club. If you have not been paying attention or kept up with the reading, in fact if you think you're going to have to say, now I haven't really been keeping up, I didn't listen I didn't read Eh. catch us after you've caught up same thing for the tangents we're just talking about the book untiljusticeatgmail.com we're just talking about this here book now we are about halfway done with the text we certainly will be by the time we finish the second audio segment this week two more sessions to go next week January 4 ah, love it only be better if we were doing maybe I'll think about that could rotate and do the book club on Saturday so we could be official on January 6 but that seems a little goofy anyway uh, I th- I'll get to the folks who dialed in and get to our emails and all of that but man oh man let me rewind so we ended drinking in the shower that's the end of chapter 4 we'll pick up at the very beginning of chapter 5 let me rewind back to old wacky Roseanne Boyland white woman tragic figure with wacky theories that got trampled I had forgotten some of this. Some of this material I did know, and I'd forgotten. It's been almost three years, next week, since all this happened. So, I mean, you forget things, and this is not, you know, oh, I need to go and study and read everything and watch all the hearings. And this is the first time I've actually read a book about January 6th, and there are quite a few of them. Probably many more coming as there should be for all of this. Act of terrorism. Total embarrassment, right? Uh, but man, if you had said who is Roseanne Boyland, I wouldn't have. You know, I would have needed some help. Like mm-hmm. Ashley Babbitt, I would have probably needed help there. But that was more of a memory thing. Like, oh yeah, I do remember that. But Roseanne Boyland, did she get trampled? I go look. I even try and be, you know, as we're reading live time, I still, you know, make an effort to be critical. I don't just grab the first report that I find because the first report that I found was the Daily Beast. I don't not that they're not credible. I think they are. But I don't that's not my I'm going to check this every time. And I wouldn't I wouldn't pick the Daily Beast as this is the first time I'm finding information brand new. And, you know, I trust that this is going to be accurate and reliable to share with other individuals, non-white people. I wouldn't pick the Daily Beast. Not that there's anything wrong with it. So, I went double-checking lest I could uh, triangulate and find many sources, which I did. So, I'm just switching and doing Forbes because I trust them a little more. Forbes, and this is important because the book we're reading was published October this year, like two months ago. This report, Forbes Magazine, April 7, 2021. That's just a few weeks after the whole melee. Title DC Medical Examiner Reveals Cause of Capital Insurrection Deaths Except for Officer Brian Sicknick. The Washington, DC Medical Examiner's Office on Wednesday published its determination of what caused the deaths of four civilians during the January 6th riots but still three months after the insurrection and said it has not concluded what killed U.S. Capitol Officer Brian Sicknick uh, Ashley Babbitt, white woman, 35-year-old Air Force veteran from San Diego who was shot by an officer while storming the Capitol died of a gunshot wound to her shoulder according to the ruling. The medical examiner's office deemed Babbitt's death a homicide meaning it was the result of intentional harm by one person by another fellow riot attendee 34 year old Roseanne Boyland white woman died as a result of a drug overdose he said he wrote Mr. Dunn that she was sober got her act together doing good work down in Georgia, the Peach State. She had been sober. Isn't that what he wrote? They said, fellow riot attendee, why not insurrectionist, domestic terrorist? 34-year-old white woman, suspected race soldier, Roseanne Boylan, died as a result of a drug overdose. The report says, listing her death as accidental and the cause acute amphetamine intoxication (sighs) do you remember I mentioned that dude Matthew Shepard a few times and saying dang they get these old white junkies and they become like martyrs and hero we don't even remember James Burr Jr like who what what Jasper? Huh? It's the Matthew Shepard hate crime law. We had that whole book, Mr. Uh, Jimenez, as a guest on the program, The Book of Matt. We said, nah, man. This white dude is not some all they killed him because he was gay and he's a... Nah, man. This is a drug deal gone bad. Roseanne Boylan, you go to terrorize... Form a coup because you didn't get the election result you wanted and you got to shoot up before you go and end up ODing in the middle of the coup WTF man that is not tragic and caught up and she didn't have wacky theory that's just hey tacky lame no count drug addict white people I mean really if it had been some crackhead negras that had overrun the Capitol, you think everybody would have been gun-shy? Even other black people, you think they would have been gun-shy? Drug, fiend, pookie, mad because Obama can't stay in the White House? <laughs> the aroma of reefer was in the air as Leroy stalked the ho- Come on, come on, come on. Either way, man... I would have to look at Mr. Dunn so hard. Like, I had for like 30 seconds thought, like, maybe we should see if Mr. Dunn... Nah, 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 nap nah, nah. It's no way in the world. Like, dude, you had years. I don't care what type of trauma, if you needed therapy or whatever and all of that. You had years. Editors, all that good stuff. You and Mr. Ron Harris, who I think might be a non-white person. To go and check, how did Rosa... Uh, what is it? Roseanne Boyland... How did this junkie die? Was she trampled to death? Was she caught up in Eliza? Was she, you can't even say she was still sober according to the medical examiner, homie. Strive for accuracy, But I, that's one that I would have to pull like real hard. And what I mean is Jesus Christ, we don't have that sort of sympathy for black people who are sober, like for real, for real, haven't committed any crimes, haven't done anything. We aren't that sympathetic for Michael Brown Jr. Why are we... Poor Miss Boylan. Nah, man. She's a junkie, traitor, terrorist. Please. Oh, I'm so disgusted. Strive for accuracy, man. Somebody should have called him out on that, like, repeatedly. The editors, everybody. Like, come on, man. Let's not cape for white junkies. Let's not cape for racist white junkies. Christ. Number 605. What is it? WTF, man. WTF. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564 Nine four three pound press star six one, if you would like to participate. Email justice at gmail dot com. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. One thing I will get people because I was checking, you know, different aspects of this as we were going and doing other. Re- like, if this is one, if you want to research, oh, M. Jesus, there is so much material, books. C-SPAN alone you can go and just watch Harry Dunn's testimony there's hours of that and many I think many of these officers that he mentioned you can go watch their testimony uh, for the hearing on all of this there's hours of that they just released this week they have released they being white uh, politicians uh, the group that investigated all of this enforcement officers they have released less than a half of 1% of the security video footage that was captured during all of this. Less than one-half of one percent of the video footage has been released. I say what's that phrase? At the hands of persons Unknown, and I mean, this is a time when a lot of these people were bragging and putting the uh, footage up on their social media and Twitter, at least for a little while, until they began to scrub all of this. But there was so much thats what—that HD color footage where you could easily go through facial recognition technology and oh, that's Chip, up, oh, that's Nate, up, oh, that's Susan, Be- easy, nap, 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 nap. Folks who dialed in Oh, that that was important, but that was not what I I wanted folks to think on. Many of the black officers... Disproportionate number, I might say, are classified as black here. Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed by a black male. He's mentioned lots of different black officers all throughout. You go look at the footage. It's lots of... And I mean, hey... This is D.C., so I mean formerly Chocolate City, Dr. Wilson, Neely Fuller Jr. It's a lot of black enforcement officers. That too, I think, is a big part. you heard of they called me? And in fact, you hear many of the black officers from that day with very similar stories. I had never been called a Negro in my life until January 6th. And they... And have the same people turn around and say, now, I don't think this was about racism. There were racists there, for sure. I don't think this was about racism. Okay, uh, but it's a lot of black officers here. I don't know. That might just be one to think on if you have thoughts, but a lot of the officers were dark people. Let us see. Folks with a hand up. Mm -hmm. share one email share one email to get one of those out of the way and then we'll nab our figure out our participation role here so we'll alternate caller email caller email we'll start one email let's see email number one listener wrote in dear mr. renegade listeners uh, white women who are part of the insurrectionist mob take a prominent role in the reading this week three were mentioned on page 82 after Mr. Dunn tells the crowd that he voted for Joe Biden for president in 2020 I have no idea why he would think that would be a reasonable thing to say at this moment you have got riled up white people they're trespassing Talking about violence, we want to drink your blood. Stop the steal and treason and all of this and for you to say, Hey Hello Black Brother. I voted for old Joe. Like, oh my god, that's see, see that's exactly what we're talking about. See? I thought I th- remember he said he said at the beginning, like, hey, hey, don't don't antagonize, you know, the protesters. We don't get them all riled up and things. So we got our protest and riot gear on. So we don't you know that is antagonized. Look here. Just shut up. Don't say nothing. Don't mention who you voted for. Be, we I don't care if you voted for Obama eight times. Shut up. Be quiet. Let's see if we can get through this out here. They say you're shaking red meat in front of the shark. Nigga going to say I voted for o- o Biden three time <laughs> and didn't get it. There. That didn't calm him down. I'm, I'm so surprised they didn't calm down after he said that. Mm. <laughs> anyway, he says, uh, Ormans saying, You hear that, guys, Nigger voted for Biden, triggered the crowd, boo, fucking nigger. Uh, while he does not specifically indicate it is a white woman, I think it probably it could have been Ashley Babbitt. How do we know? And it may not have been too. I've seen lots of white women there. Next, on page ninety-two, <laughs> my champ references Ashley Babbitt, to white woman, a former member of the U.S. Air Force who was shot by a black male Capitol Police officer because she and a crowd of insurrectionists were trying to gain access to a room where about 60 to 80 House members were located. On page 97, the third white woman, Roseanne Boylan-Junkie, is mentioned. According to Dunn, she died from an amphetamine overdose. Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. Did he say amphetamine? If I misread that, I'll make sure to credit back. But I thought he said she got trampled uh, to death. Anyway, let me finish reading his uh amphetamine overdose there seemed to be an attempt to garner sympathy that's what i said to garner sympathy for her by portraying her as a victim of drug addiction who just so happened to fall for trump's lies Mm -hmm. i might have the wrong impression but i see her as a drug addict. thanks took the words out of my mouth i see her as a drug addict racist terrorist facts that's not even name calling while we were on the topic of white women on page 73 done seem to suggest that the Proud Boys are an all-male organization while generally speaking they probably are one white woman Felicia Conold? Conold we'll say K-O-N-O-L-D I think Conold who participated in the insurrection was recruited by the Proud Boys in the Kansas City area link also on page 73 Heather Hare who was killed by suspected racists in Charlottesville gets attention for sure I have a great deal of sympathy for the Capitol police officers who fought against the racist mobs on January 6th. I've never been in the police or the military, so I don't know how it would feel being in a combat situation. It seems to me that the Capitol police were deliberately put in a disadvantageous situation. He said that done on page 71 discusses how one platoon of the civil disturbance unit made additional platoons, the main force used to handle violent crowds isn't armed with the necessary necessary tools they need. Was this done knowing the Capitol Police would be at a disadvantage and the mobs would enter the Capitol building? Question. Was it done to protect white life? Question. The crowd was majority white and Had the CDU responded as they had been trained, it is likely that there would have been more white deaths than what occurred. These are just some questions I am pondering as we read the book. Hey, I think Mr. Dunn said he is still questioning, like, who told the, uh, what is it, the Civil Disturbance Unit, who told them to this, you know, curious, uh, if not uh, insane, directive of to have your don't be in gear and to have your gear weapons safety equipment all the rest of it have it stored outside the capitol so then you have to do all this time wasting to go you know wherever it's your your gear is stashed at and then you know gear up all that however long that takes and then go back and be i mean who who said that why when for what reason have them where's their testimony at at the hearing too i'd like to hear that too All of these great questions, especially anything that's a deviation from the normal protocol that puts you at a disadvantage for an event like this, where there was so much advance notice that something was afoot in a criminal and violent manner. That should be investigated until all questions have been answered. Continues. Was this done knowing the capital? Pl- oh, we got that part. I also noticed that it seems that Dunn feels comfortable pointing out his frustration about the unusual decision to not on the CDU but he doesn't condemn it perhaps he is saying what his superiors at the Capitol Police will allow him to say could be Dunn also discusses the decision by the Capitol Police not to fire on the insurrectionist hordes as they approach the Capitol building he says that there was no order not to fire they chose not to fire on page 91 he says there were innocent people in the crowd who just got swept up in the moment what <laughs> question mark how can he call any of them innocent people because most of them were classified as white junkies or no weapons or no drink your blood or no classified as wh- white mean innocent so you know. these mobs came to stop the elected members of Congress, also mostly white, from performing their duties. The mobs committed violence. It would seem to me that these would would be people you shoot. In Mr. Dunn's words, these are racist-ass terrorists. Page 117. I will say, this is mentioned by a number of uh, officers who were there that day, and I have heard some of them report they had been recovering firearms before things got really bad on January 6th so they knew people were armed with firearms and lots of other weapons that was known some of the officers did say verbalize we thought if this becomes a violent situation where we're having a fire at protesters we know some of these people are armed this could end up being all out like I was going to say war, which it was, but all out in terms of firearm warfare on both sides. Mass can way more than five casualties, way more. That was what many of them said that they really were straining to not do that. And I can see, I guess, a certain amount of. I mean, given where everything got to, it is real weak. And the reason it's it's I can. I can try and accept a teaspoon of logic of all that, but man, if that had been Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Niana Rasayan, Gusty, it took me reading this book to realize, dang, Gus, weren't you in Washington, D.C., about four months before all this happened? yes we had the goofy yoga retreat in the middle of- we were supposed to be at the king I mean at the uh, Smithsonian the African American uh, Museum of History and Culture but it was closed for the Rona but we were supposed to be there yes we were right there literally months before all this happened uh, but yeah, I th- if we had been the folks their prote- Minister Farrakhan he mentioned the Million Man March the more recent one second time around and they had got rowdy I just don't think they would have been gunshot, especially once to the point where, you know, they're being violent, you're breaking windows and you're trespassing and you've leaped over them and you're, you're uh, assaulting officers and all the rest of it. Like, Hey man, we do not take all this lip and aggression from negros. Like we like, Oh no, this is not even going down. Like Pete guns would have been drawn if they're going to, and if the crowd was armed and it escalated great. Cause that means we can call in a national guard right now, and in fact it wouldn't even if it had even been an inkling that it was going to look like this they would have had national Guard in way earlier maybe before the day before before all this even started they said it was odd ah, that y'all don't have the the fences and the wiring and the gates and all that stuff up in preparation for all of this what's the deal they wouldn't have gave all those curious orders uh to the civil disturbance unit they would have had their gear ready to roll we're not Running around the city and get our gear over here and come. Nah, nah, nah. Be ready for these coons. Al Sharpton, you're going to behave today, buddy. Less I'm in air. Uh, let's see. Took the words out. He said, I might have the wrong perception, but I couldn't imagine a crowd that size of non white people, particularly non white black people, peaceful or no, approaching the Capitol building and not being shot. Miriam Carey, man. Miriam Carey, that's why I said like, I can kind of like, we don't want a melee but I mean really at this point you already got a melee if they want to break that, that just further shows we need the military out here right now to get all of this stopped immediately lost your mind coming to the capital with guns shooting at people, what is wrong with you mow them all down It seemed on that day of the incident, Dunn might have been receiving a message from the creator through his friend. Question, he received the text message, which included social media screenshots discussing plans for the insurrection. I don't know if he might have been able to do something differently that might have helped him and the people in his unit or if the white people in charge would have listened. I doubt it. But he does say that he ignored the warning. Hey, (laughs) hey. And now he already told us before all of this, he was not all he wanted to go home and play PlayStation. Same thing. I don't know if it would have been, you know, if he could have done anything different. Same thing like with uh, Grady Lewis. He knew something was wrong with the shooter the day before the top shooting. But, you know, what can you do? You know, I don't know. But yeah, uh, on page one after viewing the destruction and the debris in the Capitol building, Dunn asks, how could you call yourself an American and destroy the very symbols of what makes us unique in the world? I thought to myself, what does it mean to be an American? What? does it mean to be white question again i'm a little disappointed that mr dunn chose to include profanity in the book everybody keeps making a point of that we had people (laughs) mention that last we got lots of children sensitive ears Uh, i remember hearing last week that he said this is how he talks and he wanted to be authentic he did say that writing this book also may have been therapeutic to him i can respect that I was thinking that the book does contain some constructive information and is written at a level that many people, including elementary and middle school students, could read and understand. I wonder, however, if some of the profanity might prevent adults who care for children from sharing this book with them. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. I am not a parent or an educator, so I don't know. What do parents and educators think? I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. About the Canadian Football League, in the past, the league had has had a ratio requirement for Canadian and international players. The CFL teams play with 12 players, and there had to be seven Canadian starters on the field at all times. rest could be filled by international players typically Americans. Dunn's place may have been taken by a less qualified Canadian player but it is the way the CFL ensured Canadians would continue to play and be the majority of the players on each of the nine teams no doubt that there is probably racism involved in some way. I believe there 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 may have been changes for this past season but I am not certain how it works. I remember a former professional football player was a guest on the Cows, Anthony Pryor. His name escapes me now, but he did discuss racism in both the NFL and the CFL, the Slave Side of Sunday. He played for the Jets. They're playing right now. How wacky. But he did play in the CFL too, Mr. Anthony Pryor. He talks about his uh, Canadian experience in the book as well. Much obliged. Uh, Email number one. And they do have these sort of what you to call it uh, what is that like a some sort, I want to say token but that's not what it is um, they have quotas that's what i was thinking not tokens quotas they do have these sort of quota systems for professional sports leagues in different parts of the world uh, most of the time generally to keep dark people from dominating cuz i know in like basketball they have the same thought, sort of thing Uh, For like the Chinese basketball league and some of the other leagues that you can't just, you know, steal a whole bunch of dark dudes from the U.S. to come over on the team. Like half the team has to be Chinese players or maybe even a little bit more than half. And then the rest of them can be American, that sort of thing. Very common, same type of thing. See if they get the local talent. But some way I would see the racism factoring in again. Okay, let's see one email. Now we can switch over and do one caller. Let's see. Uh, Non-Clemson grad, woke baby, should be with us. Let's see.
9: Hello, can I be here?
8: Non-Clemson dad.
9: Oh, yes. Uh, how is everyone doing? Hope everyone's having a wonderful day. I got a couple of things that I'm going to turn it over to my wife. Um, I heard about all the different um, protests that have happened in the book. The one that caught my attention was the Million Man March back in 2015. Me and my wife did go to the Million Man March, and when we went, it was uneventful. It was even boring. Nothing happened. Um, Let's see. um, The part where he kept saying that, um, especially during the interview, is this really America? I couldn't help but to think about that song that um, Donald Glover came out with a couple years ago, um, This Is America. Um, that song popped in my head immediately, though I will say this, though. I don't think the cops themselves were slipping. Um, as he alluded to as he was going through, as, you, uh, as he was reading the book, um, they were basically put in a bad situation. The idea that this is the one, like, you know, with all the evidence to suggest that something bad was going to happen, the idea that they were told to, uh, even though they got helmets, they were told to put their uh, protective equipment outside of the Capitol, and not be ready it just strikes me as odd matter of fact who's the person that gave the order for them not to have their um, protective equipment and ask that person point blank why did you make this decision what led what led you to make that decision and then let's see um the um, the part where he was standing guard and one of the people one of the insurrectionists um, came by and flashed his uh, flashed his badge um you know I think back to all the you know all the wars that black people have participated in inside the um um in the history of this country going back you know you know to the civil war and I couldn't help but to think to myself you know black people seem come up to me as just more patriotic than white people um here we are all these black people um especially the ones of the Capitol police force not that there weren't white ones there either but of all these black people defending, the, um, you know, the Capitol grounds against a whole bunch of white insurrectionists. And, um you know, we get like, you know, people like Louis, the biggest terrorist in, you know, the world. All these black people like me and my wife come into the Capitol like we're going to do something horrible and, you know, usur- uh, sorry do some kind of coup against the government. But there's nothing, no history to suggest this, getting back to the idea of uh, black people being more patriotic. But we have a clear situation more than a couple times now, like going back to Michigan a couple years ago, white people do something like this, and yet they're seen as the patriots for doing so. And now I'm going to turn it over to my wife. Where'd she go? Oh, there she is. Hello, everyone. Um, Just a couple comments for this week.
6: Um, Though I don't agree with the author, Harry Dunn, I can understand his position that the insurrection was not race-based, but based in the spirit of revolution and political unrest. Like, these white people, they don't like how the government is being run, agree with the decision, or in this case, um, the validity of the vote, and therefore they're going to protest. So although I don't agree with him, I can I can see his perspective. Um, let's see. The Capitol officers, their ultimate duty um, is their commitment to defend the federal buildings, the national artifacts in D.C., upholding a place for democracy to exist and thrive, and to protect the politicians, the judges, and the staff members. Um, he said that he has an allegiance to the country so much that he put um, the country before himself he put the country before his personal politics um, there was a lot of uh like reflection on if somebody uh was in need of an abortion and they had to protect these politicians who would fight um, fight uh fervently against that or for gay rights um, politicians are fighting against that or fighting against black people's um, humanity and right to vote or whatever. Um, I, I I find it very hard to believe that he was never called a Negro while wearing his police officer uniform. I just find that very unlikely and maybe it created a little bit more drama um, in the story, and you know, white women do it best. He was called a Negro in the uniform by a white woman. Let's see. Um, I think, I think with that, I will end my share.
8: Right on, Mama C, woke baby non-Clemson dad. Uh, now we have one vote of no confidence that this is the first time Mr. Dunn has been called a Negro, uh in uniform, his years of service at the Capitol at this point. Uh, maybe for more dramatic effect. It would still be dramatic even if it wasn't the first time. Like, he actually called me a Negro. Huh. Could, even though... Some of the other black officers who were working that day, they said the same thing that I never I couldn't even believe it. I was stunned. I was. <laughs> I don't know. They got going on in D.C. Uh, let's see. The oh, I was able to check. He does say. Made an error. I was wrong. I was wrong. Strive for accuracy. So he does have the sentence in there. It has been determined that Boylan was not trampled to death, but rather she died from amphetamine overdose. It is there. Now, I could say, maybe I got confused because immediately comes after that saying that she had been sober for several years, which would seem to not be true. And all of that, her doing all this other work and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But he does say it explicitly. She died from an amphetamine overdose is explicitly there in the text but man all of that tragic figure and all the rest of it would still be applicable Uh, and in fact even man like I do think that to a degree because it kind of gets sandwiched in between all of that she's a tragic figure and she got duped by all those Trump lies and as I said she had been sober for several years which seems to contradict what I just said anyway my bad Mr. Dundit does have it in there amphetamine overdose i was wrong pay attention uh let's see email number two said we would alternate email two lauren writes in uh hello gus callers i couldn't call in so i'm sharing some notes chapter three the insurrection part one one we have thousands of people working inside and outside the capitol the u.s representatives and senators And their staffs, maintenance workers, cafeteria workers, the people who run the visitor center, the tourist shops, and hundreds of Capitol Police officers. I think someone else had already pointed out, but Mr. Dunn's use of the term, we, is interesting. It's like he is grouping himself with the most powerful white people in this area of the world. It seems like it would have been more appropriate to write, there are thousands of people working inside and outside of the Capitol. That makes sense, too. Imagine demonstrating to save the environment and you've got a bunch of armored up police staring down at you isn't that what they do when non-white people protest I was thinking the same thing like man if it had been me Leroy, Lakeisha mad gentrification in DC like man they would have been armored up tank city number three unemployment was going up and people were blaming it on Washington and Barack Obama now importantly this was 2009. Obama had been in the White House like days. So, I mean, how much of it could really be his fault at that point? He hadn't even been there long enough. Anyway, that is such an interesting way to phrase that Washington and Barack Obama. When white people are being blamed, it's Washington. He doesn't say the names of specific white people like Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell, former President Bush, lots of folks. But when a person classified as black is blamed, he says... Barack Obama, not the White House. One is specific and the other is much more general. Four I'm certainly not trying to suggest that somebody in our command structure even had an inkling that the crowd was going to try to breach the Capitol. None of our officers on the front line had any indication that rioters would attack us and then try to make their way into the Capitol. It seems like officers in command structure probably did have an inkling of what was going to happen. How else could they have told the civil disturbance unit not to wear the protective gear that they usually do, and why did they get the helmets? question mark. That too, uh, him saying this is the first time that they have ever been told to helmet up and they got brand new helmets, apparently. Man, I mean, to make that sort of purchase, to get a mass order of helmets in and all of this, somebody had to have an idea. Like I said, Michigan, that was months before. Like, hmm. Same type of thing might happen here. We've had all this white defiance for a whole year. You don't tell me what to do. You don't make me wear a mask. You don't tell me I have the distance. We've had all this for a year. Hmm. They might turn up about this election, you think? Please. Also, how could the author know that none of the officers had an indication white people are typically well-informed did he ask every single officer great question and if he did is he just taking their word for it even if mr. Dunn had indications that there would be attacks he saw all of the white people walking around when he drove into work and he got that text message that he completely disregarded. yeah 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 like I said I played some of the audio at the beginning White people have said now, with three years of investigating, that there were lots of signs, lots of indications that something was arrived. and yeah, even allegations of negligence that, yes, it seems like maybe some officers did know this was going to happen, and they aided and abetted all of this. calls for back that's another big one calls for why was this allowed to go on for hours we're calling for backup and a lack of urgency about all of this why would that be same thing would that have been the case if it had been a lot of dark people storming the Capitol Mm. she continues five not long after I took up my post I got a text a friend took a screen grab of something he saw on social media and sent it I read it and chuckled I don't know why that's funny the fuller said we are silly about things that are serious I don't see nothing chuckle worthy about January 6 even Ashley Babbitt Uh, rally point I pretty much shrugged it off nobody had ever breached the Capitol. I thought and nobody was going to try looking back now that text my friend sent me Uh, Seems to have foreshadowed what happened. Foreshadowing is a narrative device which a storyteller gives an advance hint of what is to come later in the story. Foreshadowing often appears at the beginning of a story and it helps develop or, or subvert the audience's expectations about upcoming events. That was not foreshadowing. Foreshadowing—that was someone saying exactly what they were going to do. Driving into work and seeing more people than usual walking around was foreshadowing, in my opinion. <laughs> Just getting to the—yeah, that was pretty codified because they were talking about the weapon stash. <laughs> you pretty much got to look at the logistics of what the plan is, uh, and yeah. Chuckled—he didn't even say "shush." Sh- chuckled it off. <laughs> Uh, January 6th. Number 6. How can there be good people on both sides when one side chanted racist and vile slogans and then ran over a woman who was peacefully protesting their bigotry? Hey, hey. Well, Good is one of those words that is used often but seldom defined. I have come to the conclusion that when most people use the term good what they really mean is desirable. If you practice racism and you see other people practicing racism, it's foreseeable that you would refer to the people practicing racism as good because you think that behavior is desirable. Seven, as these assholes turned to me I saw that some of them were dressed like members of a militia group, Michigan I saw, I'm sorry, but they were assholes to me, every time I think of them I get angry, anyway, they were dressed like militia members, they had on tactical vests, cargo pants, and body armor, there's been a lot of profanity, why do you, what is, really, really really, you all have sat around and listened to Kanye West Drake Nicki Minaj and all kinds of filth uh hip-hop music and such and sit around and have the audacity they're talking 50 years of hip-hop where they've sat around and easy-e this and p Diddy that and you're going to act like you have never heard uh, an, a, a, a profane word. You sit around and listen to Kevin Hart and Cat Williams every day and now, oh my lord he said filth and fl- oh my oh come on come on what in the, they said that last week, too. Remember? They got all sensitive. Jiminy, that is in the Ten Stops. No cursing. Man, we've, have we read other books? with It was cursing in uh, The Hate You Give, wasn't it? Jinkies, let's see. Obama's book, he cursed in there, too. Not this much, but he did the cursing there, too. Uh, let's see. A lot of profanity. Calling white people assholes. He knows instinctively that some sort of explanation should be given. Over. <laughs> I reckon I think too racists is not assholes 8. I made my way to the Rotunda. The Rotunda is a large circular room that is the display room of the Capitol. It's the room that all the tourists visit when they come. It's filled with statues and ornate paintings that reflect and sometimes distort our nation's history. The Rotunda is the jewel of the Capitol. I sat there surrounded by historic paintings that I usually took for granted massive portrayals of American history and mythology, the discovery of the Mississippi River, pilgrims preparing to leave Europe for the New World Pilgrim, the surrender of the British General Lord Cornwallis during the Revolutionary War, the baptism of Pocahontas, and what's called the Apotheosis of Washington, painted inside the dome at the very top. First, there's one nation, the white nation. Second, the line about ornate paintings that reflect and sometimes distort was unusual in its accuracy, calling the historic paintings American History and Mythology was another one. I don't think Mr. Dunn was responsible for those lines, I can't be sure, but those lines seem incongruent with the way Mr. Dunn has articulated his thoughts so far in the text. Maybe Mr. Harris peppered in a few, you know, make it a little catchier uh, in terms of how he was visualizing all this at the time. Nine, bro, what the fuck just happened? Can you believe this shit? Fuck, what the fuck? (laughs) I could see people talking like this though in this sort of frantic you know type of situation what happened to our country now that what happened to our country and then I started yelling the same thing over and over is this America is this America sometimes in our confusion we can articulate very important questions what the fuck just happened is very logical to try to comprehend action situations that one is having difficulty understanding. I think that's similar to the constant question what's going on? Is this America? My answer is no. Even that one uh, our country like what? what? Can't even, this is another one like yes they brag about this all the time they brag about incidents like this is the tea party They brag about incidents like this on the eggnog riot of 18th. When I say, man, Katrina, you just go long list. They brag about this sort of conduct. White culture, man, get, look it up and go out and ah, ah, let's see. So she gets the why didn't they shoot? Yes, I did ask myself that question. I think the answer is because most of the insurrectionists were classified as white. Uh, we were never told not to fire in a system of racism white supremacy people don't need to be told not to shoot white people that's the training most non-white people don't even think about killing white people Uh, what Who do you shoot? If you just start firing indiscriminately into the crowd, you're at risk of killing people who are unlawfully there, but who primarily are stupidly swept up into the moment. Yes, some people were there to physically harm us, but so many people weren't. I do not think that white law enforcement officers have these sorts of thoughts about non-white black people, Tamir Rice, and certainly not for insurrectionists. White law enforcement officers kill black people that are not committing crimes on a regular basis. Four, I have noticed that he keeps calling people idiots in the text. Idiot implies that a person is dumb, stupid, or slow, and I just don't think that's the case when he uses the term. Those idiots knew enough to adequately prepare for what was going to happen. I think Mr. Dunn was confused. They were more informed about what was going to take place on January 6th than he was. So, I mean, if we're being technical in term usage, the idiot here at least in the context of what was going to happen on January 6th, 2021 say that all the time, man, we use that term idiot, stupid, he said that one too idiot and stupid and tragically caught up and all of this and we're talking about white people like, no man, no we're not using the correct terms these are people who sat on and made conscious choices about what they wanted to do that's not ignorance, even if you don't agree with it, if you don't think it's logical does not matter that does not mean they are stupid dumb ignorant slow certainly not slow in a dumb witted sense of the term slow not at all body armor come on come on bear spray you got bear spray just sitting around ready to roll anywho uh, let's see Didn't get to all the emails. Didn't get to my notes or lots of things. He had other callers, too. Uh, We'll do the second audio. That will make sure that we have time. Lieutenant Michael Byrd. That is the black male who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. He does have testament. Man, they investigated that. You shoot a white woman. Oh, my God. (laughs) That right there. That right there is exactly why I told you most or not most retract, not most. Many of the officers on the scene that day were black, and a lot of black males. There's no. Oh my God! I cannot wait to go and watch the testimony. For uh, they investigated him repeatedly. He was cleared every time. But you shot a white woman. I was defending white people. That's all I would say. That I was defending. I was. De- I was defending white elected officials. I was saving white lives. What are you talking about that would have been my answer to every question. I was saving white lives. I was saving white lives. I was saving white lives. Maybe that's how he answered every question. Cause they cleared him two times for killing Ashley Babbitt, black male, Lieutenant Michael bird. I we'll have to see if he's still with the force though. But I mean, it's a lot of, but that's another one that should factor into all thought about why didn't they shoot more? It was a lot of white protesters. It was a lot of black male or it would have been lots of, of black people having to come in to answer, why did you shoot this white person man uh I didn't even get my notes I didn't even get my notes I didn't even get my oh, the bottles of liquor that's when I get out. He said, as I looked around what was normally a pristine room had been trashed, bottles of liquor drugs, discarded weapons, and other catch crap strewn across the floor, the air was a foul, caustic, nearly unbreathable. Mist. That's the end of chapter three. Liquor with it. And he said, Hey, 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 Roseanne boiling. Amphetamine. So you got to be shooting up in the midst of the coup. We mad. Let me get my. Got to shoot up before we get rolling. And then the bottles of. And they got video of that too. What the. Come on, man. Come on, man. I got to get me. Pass the Cavassier before we get the coup started. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Get my. Get my Jack and Coke here. Then got on my nerves, and it's cold. I don't I the eggnog riot of 1826, man. That was George Washington too, man. They had his, they had his recipe, which was, I think, rum and all that. I can't even do it. Audio segment two. People who didn't get to share our other emails will do it on the other side. Take notes as we proceed, picking up Chapter Five. Catherine Massey Book Club context of white supremacy. Harry done standing my
7: ground chapter 5 the day after on the morning of january 7th 2021 my alarm went off at its usual time 5:30 i don't remember waking up but i also couldn't remember falling asleep i must have at least for a couple hours but the blaring of my alarm didn't jolt me awake like it usually did It didn't wake me at all. My eyes were open and I could move my body, but my mind was cloudy, as if it were lost in a fog. I had the physical pain, the bruised limbs, the ache all over my body, like I remember from my football days, but my mind was numb. I got out of bed and went through the motions of getting ready for my day. I never considered whether I should take the day off. As a police officer, I have to give back up. That's part of the job. It's what my fellow officers and I signed up for. I knew they'd be there, back at work, if they could be. If they could be. Some couldn't be. And for the first time, I felt something that I would probably feel for the rest of my life. Rage. It came like a sudden storm. A deep anger that filled me. Images of my fellow officers being beaten pepper sprayed, and overrun came flooding back to me. It's not like I had forgotten about the attack, but my mind was in such a fog that to be confronted with those painful memories nearly overwhelmed me, but I had to keep going. By six o'clock, I was in my car, driving to the Capitol, in the pre-dawn darkness. As I neared the building, I noticed other law enforcement and military personnel everywhere. I guess they probably hadn't slept at all. National Guard trucks clogged the streets, mixing with Capitol Hill cars and vehicles of several other law enforcement departments. Bright siren lights broke the morning calm while cops and troops in riot gear patrolled the streets leading up to Capitol Hill. I drove my car to Capitol Hill Police Headquarters near the Senate Dirkset Office Building and walked through a militarized zone to the Capitol Building. At 7 o'clock, I was sitting with the other officers in the cafeteria where we held roll call. As I sat there, waiting for the day's orders, Antonio, my trainee, came bounding up to me. I had heard he had been taken out the fight the previous day, but clearly his injuries weren't serious enough to keep him off work. What do we got today, he asked me. It was his tone that irritated me. I could barely form a coherent thought, and here was this kid, as anxious as ever to start his day. I didn't even look at him. Just... Just hang out in the break room or something, I told him. I didn't talk to him for the rest of the day. The mood in the cafeteria before roll call was somber. Usually, there's laughter, jibes, the sort of stuff one would expect when a bunch of cops get together to start their day. But not this day. This day, we all just sat, shell-shocked, waiting for someone to tell us what to do. I looked around to see who was still there and noticed quickly all the faces that weren't. Officer Brian Sicknick was just one of dozens whose fate was unknown. The last I heard, he had been taken to the hospital, as had so many others. Word would come to us throughout the day of how these officers were faring. But, at that hour, most of us knew nothing. The sergeants who got up to speak tried to revive our spirits. They applauded our heroism of the previous day, urging us that now was the time to stick together, that we couldn't let our shock overwhelm us. We still had a job to do. There were murmurs of dissent from the group, but most of us, I imagine, just wanted to get on with it. I know I did. I just wanted to be alone. When roll call was over, I headed to the rotunda, walking up the very steps I had defended 18 hours earlier. Snapshots of the fight came to my mind. I suddenly saw the corridors and corners of the battlefield, still strewn with debris and graffiti, disgusted. I took out my phone and recorded the damage and filth that had been left under the Capitol dome. There were batteries, placards, Trump flags, trash, and strangely, lots of pistachios. Seriously, there were bags of pistachios everywhere. I panned my camera through the carnage, stopping at one of the entrances, known as the Memorial Doors, in honor of two Capitol Hill police officers who were gunned down near them in 1998. Scrawled across the window panes were the words, "Murder the Media. Did the insurrectionists who wrote those words know what that door signified? Did the others who ran rampant through the rotunda beneath the dome that had been erected during the Civil War when Americans had killed Americans by the thousands appreciate their desecration? I felt that rage bubble up inside me again, a kind of hopeless anger that made me question everything. Did this building, its purpose, and its history mean nothing to these people? How could you call yourself an American and destroy the very symbols of what makes us unique in this world? None of it made sense to me, and that only deepened my anger. I eventually retreated to an empty room where I didn't have to see anyone. Burying my head in my hands, I cried. Someone might have seen me. I don't recall, but I also didn't care. I was falling into a state of mind that would consume me for months. Fueled by anger, but crippled by sadness, I felt helpless. I snapped my Beats by Dre headphones on and lost myself in music while I finally responded to the dozens of texts and Facebook messages I had received since the previous day. I didn't spend much time answering each one. Instead, I opted for a quick response. I'm safe, but I'm not okay. That's how I spent most of the day, sitting alone, listening to music, and replying to messages. I did venture outside at certain points to make sweeps to the grounds, where we found bullets and firecrackers. Then I retreated back to an empty conference room and resumed my isolation. Bouts of sobbing would suddenly hit me, as my anger overtook my emotions. I wanted to scream, but instead, I just cried. As a group, we didn't discuss much about who was at fault for the chaos during the attack. At least not that day. I didn't have firm feelings on this one way or the other that morning. But as the day wore on and I started looking at the news, my anger turned towards our Capitol Police leadership. I thought they had let us down, leaving us on our own for too long to control a situation that from the very beginning was entirely out of hand. I don't necessarily think that way anymore, but at the time when I was looking for someone to blame, I couldn't help it. And others were thinking the same thing. By the early afternoon, I saw that Speaker Pelosi had called on our police chief, Stephen son, to resign. My initial thought was good. Someone has to answer for this. When Chief Sun eventually offered his resignation later that evening, my temper had cooled a bit. I didn't really blame him, but I felt that he was doing the honorable thing by taking responsibility. In the months to come, we would all learn more about what happened and why. But at that moment, not even 24 hours after the battle, Everyone was confused and in shock. The Capitol Police, most of all. All throughout that day, I remained locked away, occasionally chatting over group text to fellow officers, but having no desire to be in anyone's presence but my own. I was counting the minutes until I could just go home when an email suddenly came through my inbox. It was from LinkedIn. What the fuck is LinkedIn? I asked the empty conference room. Then I remembered. Nearly ten years earlier, When I had been job hunting, I had opened a LinkedIn account to help my search. The Capitol Police job came to me shortly afterwards, so I never ended up doing anything with my profile. I hadn't even looked at it in a decade. So I was wondering why someone named Emmanuel Felton was trying to reach me through that long ignored account. His message to me was simple enough. Are you a Capitol Hill police officer? He wrote, I'd love to talk to you about what happened. What the hell was this? I clicked through to his profile. BuzzFeed reporter. Ah. Then I saw he was black. That helped a lot, making me feel like this guy might get it. Without thinking through any of the ramifications, personal or professional, I replied, yeah, what's up? And that started the conversation that would change my life. I learned Brian Signick died later that night at around 9.30. The group text I was on with other officers got the news before anyone else. The true nature of Brian's death wouldn't be fully known for several weeks. But at that point, news of his passing only added fuel to the gradually growing fire that was within me. The few conversations I had with other officers on January 7th and the days following broke down along two camps. There were those who, like me, were in a state of shock, disbelief, and anger at what had happened and been allowed to happen. I even spoke to officers who had been Trump supporters who felt this way. Trump was responsible for my friend, Nick being dead, and I'll never forgive him for that, one officer who I would describe as a hardcore Trump supporter told me. But there was another sentiment I heard expressed at this early stage, when even most of the Republican caucus had condemned the violence. Was it really that bad? What's the difference between this one and other protests we've had? The presence of the first sentiment, by full-on Republicans no less, did little to dampen my rising rage at those who expressed the second view. Throughout my life, I have rarely made knee-jerk decisions. I've always attempted to hear the other side of an argument, and make sure that when I come to an opinion, it's an informed one. I might not agree with you, but I'll listen to you. But no matter how hard I tried, I simply couldn't understand the view of my fellow officers who seemed to be dismissing the attack on January 6th. I wanted to scream at them. Did you go through the same shit I did? They all agreed it shouldn't have happened, but they also refused to condemn the attack as anything more than a peaceful protest that got out of hand. Of course, this was completely different from the experience I had. When I had been fighting through the hallways and stairwells against a mob that knew what it was doing, they knew why they were there. They even told me that anyone could dismiss it as anything other than a concerted assault enraged me. And it was this mentality that I carried into a conversation with Emmanuel Felton from BuzzFeed. We exchanged a few more messages that evening and into the next day. My early messages to him were evasive. I knew what he was asking me to do, but I was pretty damn sure I shouldn't be doing it. There was still graffiti on the Capitol walls. There was still trash in the corridors. People had died. Dozens of my fellow officers were in the hospital, some with critical injuries. I knew that for these reasons, I shouldn't start mouthing off to a reporter. Forget the professional consequences. There were also the personal relationships I might tarnish. You go through battle together, only to then start talking about the experience with someone who wasn't there, it didn't feel right. But then there was my anger and my extreme sadness. combined. These two emotions triggered in me a need to say something. No one has ever had to wonder what I'm thinking. And at that moment, I was thinking that there were several groups of people who had failed my fellow officers and me at our most dangerous moment. And so, as my conversation with Felton continued, I became less resistant and we started to discuss how we could keep me anonymous if I did grant him an interview. Felton assured me he would protect my identity, but as we talked, I realized that I needed to make a decision. If I spoke with him, there would be a good chance I would be identified. My fellow officers know me. My superiors know me. They knew I had trouble keeping my mouth shut. They knew I was struggling with the attack. Given the details I would give to Felton, it wouldn't take a Sherlock Holmes to finger me as the source. So if I was going to do it, then I had to be okay with being identified and perhaps losing my job. And then suddenly I realized, I didn't care anymore. Fuck it, I said to myself. This is bigger than me. When Felton and I actually conducted the interview over the phone, a sudden change came over me. Perhaps it was just a pent-up frustration and anger that I had been dealing with for the last two days. Or maybe it was that Felton, a black man, also saw the racial component to January 6th, one that so many in the media seemed to be ignoring entirely. Felton had purposely reached out to black officers because he wanted to hear the experience of black cops fighting against white rioters. It's usually the opposite, as the nation witnessed the previous summer, not to mention for many decades. This was the guy who got it. And so I didn't hold back in the slightest. Felton is a reporter, but being able to tell my side of the story to anyone had a cathartic effect on me, much like I was talking to a therapist. Did I feel better afterward? That's hard to say. My anger was still there and would only increase as the months went by, but I felt relieved as though for a brief moment, a weight had been lifted. I also felt like myself again, more than I had since before January 6. Buzzfeed published Felton's article on January 9th under the headline, black police officers described the racist attacks they faced as they protected the Capitol. It wasn't the first in-depth account of what happened, but it did provide the perspective and experiences of two black officers who were there that day. A veteran and a younger man, as Felton described me and my fellow officer. To this day, the other officer remains anonymous. It doesn't take a deep reading to see how I had let loose my anger to Felton. The officer even described coming face-to-face with the police officers from across the country and the mob. He said some of them flashed their badges telling him to let them through and trying to explain that this was all part of a movement that was supposed to help. You have the nerve to be holding a Blue Lives Matter flag, and you are out there fucking us up, he told one group of protesters he encountered inside the Capitol. One guy pulled out his badge, and he said, we're doing this for you. Another guy had his badge, so I was like, well, you gotta be kidding And then Felton reported on the angle I felt so many in the media had been missing. He wrote, While it was a hard day for almost every officer at the Capitol, Black officers were in a particularly difficult position, he said. And he drew a stark contrast with how police handled the Black Lives Matter protests the previous summer. There's quite a big difference when the Black Lives Matter protests come up to the Capitol, he said. On Wednesday, some officers were catering to the rioters. He said that what upset him the most was when he later saw images of a white Capitol police officer taking a selfie with the attackers, seeming to enjoy his time with the insurrectionists who were roaming the U.S. Capitol with Confederate flags and other symbols of white supremacy. I unloaded my frustration with Capitol Hill Police Chief Stephen Son. Felton quoted me anonymously as saying, Our chief was nowhere to be found. I didn't hear him on the radio. One of our other deputy chiefs was not there. You don't think it's all hands on deck? I was wrong when I said that. You have to remember, it was less than 24 hours after the trauma of January 6th, so the pain was fresh and my thoughts were scattered. I found out later that the chief was in the tunnel, coordinating getting us help. He was doing his job. I just couldn't see it. You can also tell that I took my fuck it attitude into the interview since I let slip this nugget describing my actions after the attack ended. I sat down with one of my buddies, another black guy, and tears just started streaming down my face. Felton quoted me as saying. I said, what the fuck, man? Is this America? What the fuck just happened? I'm so sick and tired of this shit. Felton then described how I was screaming so that everyone in the rotunda, including my colleagues, could hear what I had just gone through. These are racist-ass terrorists, he quoted me as shouting. There were only so many officers who others had seen crying in the rotunda that night, and only one who screamed out that last line. My anonymity wasn't helped by the fact that Felton's article went viral, garnering tens of thousands of likes on Twitter. He would say to me later that no article of his ever received anything near that amount of attention. He also told me that he was fielding dozens of requests from fellow journalists to disclose the identity of the two officers. Back at work, it was an open secret that I was one of Felton's sources. And nothing happened, at least not directly to me. While I remained anonymous to the general public, I didn't hide from my fellow officers. Perhaps in less hectic times, I would have been in trouble for talking. Although, it's not like I leaked anything but there were serious matters confronting our leadership. A new chief, an internal investigation about the attack, and questions about the force's response. It seemed that one lowly officer's opinion, shared by many on the force, didn't rise to the level of an urgent matter, for which I was, of course, grateful. Then, on Twitter, I noticed that my member of Congress, Representative Jamie Raskin, had tweeted out one of my quotes from the article. I was overjoyed. Of course, Raskin had no idea who I was. But suddenly, my anonymity seemed like a hindrance. He should know who said that. He should know that it was one of his constituents who stood his ground that day. So not thinking much of it, I called Raskin's office and told the receptionist that I was the Capitol Hill police officer quoted in the BuzzFeed story. Wait, seriously? The receptionist asked. Yes, I'm Harry Dunn, I replied. He hold on just a moment, Officer Dunn? Of course. I then heard them frantically trying to figure out where Representative Raskin was. There was a lot of commotion in the background before the receptionist got back on the line and asked for my cell number because the member of Congress would call me privately. I happily gave it, which is how I ended up having lunch not long afterwards with Raskin. Breaking my anonymity wide open, but also talking to the lead impeachment manager for Trump's second impeachment trial. Without using my name, a few weeks later, Raskin stood in the Senate chamber and recounted a portion of my comments from the Felton article into the record of the trial. I started to see something happening, something I never imagined would involve me. I was slowly but surely making my presence felt. That's never been a problem for me in a room full of people. People know I'm there, but in the halls of Congress, during the impeachment of an American president. I had shoved my six-feet-seven frame through these doors, metaphorically speaking, and people were now listening. Before the impeachment trial, Fulton asked if I wanted him to release my name to any of those reporters who had been asking about me. He explained that they, too, would protect my anonymity if I requested it. It was up to me if I wanted to continue on this media train. Let me think about it, I told him. I trusted Felton, and so I trusted that he wouldn't give my name to hack journalists or those who would abuse me somehow. I wasn't the most media-savvy person. Hell, I had agreed to be an anonymous source without discussing it with anyone else. I was diving headfirst into a world I knew nothing about, especially about the dangers that awaited me. But I also knew how I felt after my interview with Felton, and certainly after seeing the incredible response the article generated. The article had done something. While the politicians and pundits were separating into their partisan camps, each trying to turn their version of January 6th into the accepted version, I had been able to tell my story. A story that represented so many of my fellow officers. That felt good. That felt like I was helping. My anger had not subsided in the least. But I was at least doing something with it. Why not continue to do something? I called Felton back. Okay, you can give my name to five journalists you trust, I told him. Felton thanked me and got to work. Why five? For no other reason than it seemed a manageable number to me. I had no idea what I was doing or how any of this worked. While I wanted to keep pushing the true story of January 6th, I also had a job. One that was taking up more and more of my free time. So many officers hadn't been able to return to work in the weeks after the attack. And we also temporarily lost 100 more who tested positive for COVID-19. Not only did we have to deal with the fallout of the attack, but we also had an inauguration coming up for Joe Biden. The National Guard was still on hand leading up to the ceremony on January 20th. But most of us were pulling double shifts and being worked to the bone. It speaks to the caliber of our officers that we hung together during these first couple weeks after the attack. Much like soldiers, whose combat experience binds them together more strongly than ever, we all had shared something truly traumatic, an event that had taken the lives of several officers, even if only indirectly. We stood by each other during a time when our vulnerabilities had been exposed to the entire world. The threats continued to pour in as well, keeping all of us on edge as we neared Inauguration Day. As it happened, the event was peaceful and so damn welcome. I spent the ceremony on the east side of the Capitol, and so I couldn't see President Biden take the oath of office, but I watched it on my phone and wept. Meanwhile, Felton had connected with five and only five journalists. Some I soon discovered I wasn't interested in going forward with, the deaths of Brian Sicknick from stroke and Howard leavinggood from suicide dominated a lot of the media's conversation in the weeks after the attack, but I never felt comfortable discussing my fallen officers. I was happy to give my story and walk a journalist through my experience, but I was going to hold the line at talking about someone else. One of the journalists felt and introduced me to was Victor Ordonez, a producer for ABC News. Through Ordonez, I met Pierre Thomas, an award-winning television journalist once named Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists. Thomas wanted to put me on the air in front of millions of viewers to tell my story. What do you think, he asked me. Hell, I had no idea. My interview with Felton helped me remember the therapeutic value of talking about the trauma that I experienced. But I don't want to give the impression that I was getting better during the days and weeks after the attack, when I freely let my views of January 6th be known, whether I was talking with the journalist or with anyone else. I was still racked with anger and sadness. When I arrived at work each day, I would wait as long as I could in my car before getting out. During lunch, when I used to love to kick back with my friends in the break room of the Capitol. Instead, I went back to my car and ate alone. I rarely saw my friends. I avoided my family. I kept in touch with folks over text and Facebook, but that was as close as I wanted to be with anyone. If I recognized that I was depressed, I wasn't doing much about it. I was trying to carry on, shoulder the burden of my mental anguish as I felt a man is supposed to do. For a guy as gregarious and outspoken as I am, I discovered how quickly I turned inward when faced with true emotional trauma. I became, in essence, a different person. I was full of rage, especially as the weeks went by, and it became apparent that the Republicans were walking away from their earlier condemnation of the attack of their distancing from Trump. I found it hard to contain my feelings. Congress members I had known for years, whom I had guarded and protected, through the the reunions, inaugurations, and just the daily routine of working on the Hill had suddenly turned on me. I couldn't understand it. I still don't. It angered me that loyalty to a single individual could overwhelm otherwise decent people. People who had fallen into darkness and forgotten their oaths of office. So obviously I wasn't in a good place for much of those early weeks after the attack. Fortunately, Dealing with extreme mental trauma isn't anything new to law enforcement. And there was help available to me. Agencies all over the country sent in peer support officers, which was one of the best things that happened. There's nothing too special about these folks, aside from the fact that they are two law enforcement who had been through some shit before. They aren't therapists. They aren't professional trauma counselors. But they have the one thing that few of those others have. They know what you are going through because they'd been through it. I didn't sit on a couch and talk to them. They'd hang out around the break room and lunch areas, just chatting with anyone who wanted to talk. Often we didn't even talk about January 6th. Sometimes I just listened to them tell their own stories. And so when I spoke, I knew I was speaking to someone who appreciated the anger inside me. They had been let down by colleagues. They had lost dear friends. They had felt abandoned by their leadership. They knew what I was thinking, even if I wasn't saying it. I'm not saying that these officers cured me, but they gave me just enough to get through my day. Officers like Eddie Morales, a U.S. Marshal, came down from New York just to sit in our break rooms and listen to me blabber. Man, Eddie was a good dude. The department also has an Employee Assistance Program, EAP, that connects officers with counselors to discuss anything that's on their mind. I wouldn't say it's a substitute for professional therapy, more like a starter kit. One of the things an EAP counselor can do is connect someone with an actual therapist. It's a good and necessary program and I had used it before January 6th. I knew enough about mental health to know that I needed to see an EAP counselor after the attack where the peer support officers offered a buddy to talk to An EAP counselor could actually give some sound healthcare advice. I knew I was struggling, and I wanted to make use of anything available to me. Only after leaving the EAP's office, after venting and raving for an hour to the person in the chair, I'd be angrier than before. I don't think it was the counselor's fault. I just needed a different kind of solution than talking to someone in a room by myself. Maybe that's what led me back to Pierre Thomas, and his offer of a televised interview. Talking about what was going on inside my head was good for me. I had to keep talking, keep getting those terrible thoughts out in the open. That's how I've always handled my problems, and I had to realize that my isolation was doing me more harm. I also had to reckon with the fact that handling my trauma personally and with a few confidants and professionals wasn't enough. I had to do more. The problem was that the attack on January 6th wasn't a single event. Yes, that was what primarily fueled my rage and despair. But the ongoing aftermath was just as awful. With the second impeachment of Donald Trump underway, it became clear to me that the Republican Party had no intention of holding anyone responsible for the attempted insurrection.
8: little teaspoon of racial narrowing. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. think retired firefighters should be up next. Uh, number 605-313-5164. The code five six four pounds Press star 61. If you would like to participate... Email is until at gmail dot com We are halfway done with the book uh we have two sessions to go uh I said it i was kind of you know i don't know i guess we could if you think it would you know for significance of all of this i mean january sixth two thousand uh two thousand twenty one is an event fifty years from now should be they will still be talking about that everybody, white people, non-white people all over the world, your grandchildren, like, oh my gosh, you were here, those hoodlums took over, what do you remember? like you know important event, right, right up there with nine eleven should be uh if you think it would be important, like, hey, maybe we should switch it and do the but it would just be two days, do the compensatory call in on Thursday and do the book club on Saturday, so that it will be on January sixth official uh, for the book club next week, I guess you can voice that opinion. Uh, I have was not planning to do it for real, but I mean, it wouldn't be that difficult. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Other folks, if we missed you totally do not wait till the end. If you have commentary to share, let's see.
7: Greetings everyone. Uh, I think I'm going to, uh, just pass it on, uh, to someone else. Uh, i Don't have access to the book. I have been
9: listening to the recordings and uh, taking
7: notes, but uh, I don't have uh, access to the book. So I'm just thinking, just go ahead and pass me by to someone
8: else. Much obliged, retired (laughs) firefighter in Florida. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with commentary to share. Let's see, Irie, and then we'll get other emails as well. Let's see, Irie, did you have commentary?
5: Yes, good evening. I was wondering, okay, when he, okay, Tane, your question, I would take excerpts from this book for a student, I wouldn't do the entire book. What he just talked about with the peer to peer counseling and the effects of PTSD that he's just discussed, you know, that's something that a child could read. Um, maybe even like how, like the beginning part of the book, how he transitioned into becoming a police officer and him talking about the training he went through for a, a young person that's thinking about security you know, anything like that being a police officer. But I wouldn't do like parts of the insurrection per se, like well it depends. Um I wouldn't do the cussing parts. Um I was wondering there's no way for them to authenticate each other when they're behind a door or some type of barrier so they know to that that's a friendly on the other side. It just, I don't know. I know, I know I didn't get that high up in the military, and I never been a cop, but it seems like there should have been some kind of cold, or you know, you know, how you've seen the movie Lima Charlie, you know, X ray da da da, and it, you know something, and maybe it changes every day, but something lets you know the person on the other side is legit. But then again, I guess that could be compromised. So. He did what he was supposed to do, but I just was interested in that from a from a tactical standpoint and I'm, I'm still learning so somebody could tell me um, I was thinking as they des- as he described the protective gear they were issuing um, and thinking in in my mind how I saw the police dressed in Ferguson um when, you know, the hands up, don't shoot, and all that, all those protests were starting. It was in full-on, like, everything that they needed to be in. They even had the shields and stuff, and they just didn't have enough. And, you know, he, he's giving people a lot of leeway to say that he, you know, he was saying, I'm, I'm not saying that they purposely did this and purposely did that and, you know, <laughs> you gotta entertain the flip side too. You know, I mean, especially when you find out later, people were sitting up there taking pictures with the insurrectionists as well. So, uh, it sounds like everybody that works in the White House, whether they're the police or whatever, they, they should be doing I don't know, maybe I'm too used to school or something, but they need drills because Mitt Romney, he sounds like he was... It's just something about it. (laughs) It just sounds like there needs to be way more... At least give them instructions or something like... Yeah. So that way they're not... They know, okay, let me go this way straight up. It's not... I don't know. I don't... I don't know. But... um. It's an interesting book. I feel bad for him because he's gotten to the point that the uh the consciousness that that, you know, white people create about America, the facade, he's really he really believes in it. He really believes in it. And for him to be like, Is this America? It's like you don't know, study enough history or, you know, you just don't think about it. Like he's still uninformed, kinda of like the young people he was talking about in a way, maybe they don't watch, maybe he watches the news every day, but he's still uninformed because he doesn't understand in the context, like, like the show says, the white supremacy and the history of it. Cause if you, for him to ask, is this America? It's like, yeah, like they do this. They, they, they go up on Tuesday when they feel like it. So that's all I wanted to say.
8: Yes, ma'am, Irie. Was it the cursing? I'm just making sure I heard correctly. I think you said some of the mental health components might be a bit much for younger audiences, but was it also the profanity as well that you said you might, uh, you know, just do snippets of the book as opposed to giving a child the whole thing?
5: I didn't mind him talking about the mental health part, you know, so people can hear about the signs of, you know, anxiety and depression and PTSD because he talks about withdrawal and he also talks about, at this point in time, you know, because kids go to school and it's and getting shot and they have the peer counselors, you know, it's a very similar situation. So I think that, you know, could be um, elucidated for children to see that, hey, adults are facing these conditions as well. Just the cursing parts when he's like, you know, did you see what the F they You know, you just have to be selective in those moments whenever the quotes come up to see what what he's saying and what he's following up with if it's going to be appropriate. You know, like he's not doing it a lot. The cousin don't bother me, and I grew up with people cursing. I know part of ten stops. I'm doing my best to not do it, but the cursing for the most part but it's just those parts. But everything else is pretty much okay
8: okay she educator thinks that was uh, one of the points that some of the other people raised about the profanity that if I had children, they're younger elementary school age ten eight like even twelve thirteen yeah like, eh, eh, not exactly g rated uh much obliged Irie uh let's see email number three are you serious are you serious <sighs> email number three. Greetings, Gus, callers, and listeners. The profanity which has been kept in this book is interesting. I am still processing whether it is necessary. Maybe it reinforces the feeling of authenticity. In other words, these are the unedited views of the author. Prudish listeners. three, Chapter 3. Uh, The civil disturbance unit is our version of the military's quick reaction force. The militarization of police forces is often discussed on the cows, particularly in the book club. For example, when LAPD chief Darrell Gates and the origin of SWAT teams is discussed, I suspect the primary motivation is for the control of areas where there are a lot of black people in most areas, too. So. Here's what's strange about that. In my, in my then 12 year plus span with the Capitol police, we had never been told to pick up riot helmets for an event. Never, never, ever. I don't understand. (laughs) The second incident happened to the civil disturbance units. The second incident happened. I was told that on the morning, Oh, this is when he gets, uh, I was told on the morning of January 6th, at least one platoon, maybe more was ordered not to wear their protective gear that day. They were told by supervisors that they would not be a backup unit. Uh, the author seems to be going to great lengths not to state the obvious conclusion leadership had intel of what was about to happen. I am not criticizing him. I understand his caution. Moreover, these books are vetted by publisher's lawyer prior to publication. Since he's still employed with the Capitol Police, they may have had to vet this book before it was published. In fact, I'd be willing to put down at least uh, a C note Benjamins at least a hundred dollars that the Capitol police department, their attorneys or what have you, they had to vet this book and probably authorize him to even write something like this. Just saying, uh, but yeah, that, that would influence what he could say about this one time singular event of the riot gear. And then this, this, curious diversion uh, about this uh, civilian disturbance or civil disturbance unit and where did these orders come from why all of that yeah, use logic three, what I saw was like a scene from a gladiator movie and what seemed like a sea of people, capital police officers and metropolitan Metropolitan DC police officers were fighting desperately hand to hand with rioters across the west lawn I could see the rioters hitting officers with flagpoles, sticks and metal bike racks throwing batteries, canned food, man the canned food alone you could put a hurtin' on somebody with I mean, talk about a projectile you could put a nice knot on somebody's noggin with a can of peas, pinto beans <laughs> like you could re- much less, you could get like a pillowcase and put like 3-4 cans of chunky soup whatever in there and wear somebody out. Now I had never, you know, even thought of <laughs> like can of soup. Let's get it.
3: <laughs> like what? What?
8: That again also. Hey, even on a budget. Maybe I don't have pipe bombs. Maybe I couldn't get my Glock, you know, my military uh, knife or whatever it is, but they got canned corn on. I can't live. I can't live. Okay. This type of behavior by suspected racists is emblematic of white culture. We will resort to violence if we don't get our way politically will 2024 bring a second act Cal's book club Ben Tillman reconstruction of white supremacy by Stephen Kantrowitz and the half has never been told Edward Baptist in the book club four riders wheezing against the wall he couldn't breathe because he was overcome with pepper spray saying I can't breathe an officer comes over to him and says can I help you sir the officer gave him a bottle of water I ran over and smashed the bottle out of the dude's hand and said uh oh cover your ears prudes Fuck you, get the fuck out. I suspect the rioter and the officer coming to his aid were classified as white. hmm. How ironic if it is a suspected racist who is saying, I can't breathe, given its association with the death of black males by enforcement officials. For sure, like water? Are you serious? You can get out of here and get, like, Perrier, artesian, water, maybe even a coffee, twist of line. Just get the F out of here. <laughs> like, what is going on? Chapter four. Then, almost out of nowhere, in come these well-dressed guys in trench coats, hair slicked back, all upbeat. It's the FBI. We call them suits. The FBI probably had intel on what was about that. Everybody did. They probably got the same text. Did you get the text message? that they sent earlier today that you chuckled about because we did <laughs> like, we, we took it seriously we've been in the van waiting for this all day had donuts too chilling why didn't they shoot the insurrectionists it's a valid question several reasons Blah, blah, blah. if they had shot up a lot of, if they had shot up a lot of these suspected racist terrorists I think it would have completely changed the narrative by the so called liberal white media the Capitol police were heroes in quotes oh yeah, and like I said there's a lot of black people I th- oh my God, it, it would have been totally different. They, all of these folks, at, they would be total heroes. The trials uh, of these Negro officers would probably be like the war trials against the Nazis after World War II. Like, oh man, I, man. I would be a lot more concerned about the officers having to answer questions about their use of force. If they had been firing on protesters, uh, you know, somebody who had bear spray or whatever else firing. Oh, man. Whew. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Number three. Uh, Rosenblatt, uh, demographic 2020 census. Fifty one point seven percent white. Uh, This is of Kennesaw, Georgia, 23.7% black. As of 2022, it had a Confederate memorabilia store. See Atlanta Fox News, September 19, 2022. Uh, 2018, the suspected racist mayor was overheard calling the black zoning director a chocolate donut. Eee, delectable Negro. Black student attacked and called racist slurs at Kennesaw State University off-campus apartment. Student named Jalik Rosemond this is from February of 2023 Negro History Month uh, chapter 5 but no matter how hard I tried I simply couldn't understand the view of my fellow officers who seem to be dismissing the attack on January 6th if you do not understand racism which is white supremacy what it is and how it works everything else that you think you understand will only confuse you absolutely that could be said many times throughout this text and many other books that have been written by victims of white supremacy. Uh, incidentally, I don't know, I don't know how much energy I would put into trying to understand someone's perspective that this wasn't that big a deal, this was just a peaceful protest, and, you know, what's, what's all the hubbub about? Like, really? <laughs> like, really? like, we still got blood and urine and drug paraphernalia all out here, and you, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Number two, black officers were in a particularly difficult position, he said. Some officers were catering to the rioters. White Capitol police officers uh, were taking selfies with the attackers, seeming to enjoy his time with the insurrectionists who were roaming the U.S. Capitol with Confederate flags and other symbols of white supremacy. I did check. Snopes has an article about this specifically. They say true. (laughs) No doubt, no ambiguity true and they go through all of the details they said they went through the security cameras to verify and they have released less than one half of one percent of the video footage about what happened but they said they went through the video footage that is available and this verified as true selfie was taken by a capitol police officer I suspect this was a white person too continuing Symbols of white supremacy, Congress members I had known for years, whom I had guarded and protected through state of the unions, inaugurations, and just the daily routine of working on the Hill, had suddenly turned on me. I couldn't understand it. I still don't. If you don't understand racism, white supremacy. And, hey, this one, if you don't understand what it means to be classified as white if he had that understanding I don't even think he would have phrased this as they turned on me that suggests that you all were in some sort of alliance union not in a system of white supremacy racism like nah man they were never with you to begin with Turned on me, uh let's see, oh, we didn't get that far. Last one. we'll save that for next week. Much obliged for our caller. got through our notes there. Let's see if I can get in any of my notes really quick. I guess folks can let us know January sixth if they think that significant switching the date would add emphasis to all of this or just keep the book club the same either way january 6 coming up next week and all of this still being talked about again this is why state of colorado trump's name not on the ballot for the 2020 election uh let's see oh and then he ended that paragraph about not understanding when his colleagues uh when they turned on him as he said he said that these people had fallen into the darkness and forgotten their oaths of office again the metaphors of white supremacy racism and even that verbiage fallen into that's verbiage too because that suggests like there was some sort of you know spill on the floor maybe it was ice outside it was winter time and such that's not what this was these individuals classified as white are grown white women grown white men who made choices about their politics how they wanted to operate as an elected official their views about the 2020 election they didn't fall into support of Donald Trump that's the same thing he was saying about Roseanne Boylan that she fell victim to the like come on man come on man that like that is totally taken away the agency of people classified as white they can be held accountable for their choices we're talking about grown white people not children Uh, let's see He said after all this happened, he was traumatized. He said that during lunch, instead of going to the break room to kick back and have fun with his coworkers, he would go to his car and eat alone. That's something I might recommend anyway, instead of sitting around and, you know, (laughs) them saying tacky things and a whole lot of non-constructive activity. I'm going to go eat by myself, get my mind together. and Now the rest of this with regards to mental health, mental health, he said, I avoided my family. I kept in touch with folks over text and Facebook, but that was as close as I wanted to be with anyone. All of that. We talk about that with neutralizing workplace racism uh, where individuals end up being so stressed as a result of things that they experience in the workplace that it ends up. They cannot function away from work they don't eat in a healthy manner either they eat too much or not enough don't sleep enough don't want to be around anyone or abusive to the people that they are around lots of unhealthy even self-destructive behaviors as a result of being so traumatized by the job that's why we have neutralizing workplace racism every Friday 8pm Eastern, 5pm Pacific that is a major symptom when it's whoa, I'm not even you know able to replenish from this Time has elapsed. I'm not even looking for my family to help me cope, talk to them, process all that. I don't even want to be around them. Like, just send them a text message and oof. Major problem. That's you know. A lot of non-white people who have not been in a insurrection end up having that same sort of feeling because of racism on the job. Uh, let's see. When he talked about weeping at the ceremony for President Biden. VGQ victims guaranteed qualified, but yeah, I would not have been. I, I was not weeping for President Obama, so I'm certainly not going to be weeping for President o. Biden or really anyone being elected to the White House as long as we're under a system of white supremacy racism. Uh, let's see. I shared uh, Mr. Emanuel Felton's report about the black officers' experience from January 6th the BuzzFeed report I've already shared it on social media uh, he said that his co-workers knew he had trouble keeping his mouth shut you do not want that reputation as a black person non-white person on your job you want to be codified with what you say uh, Dr. Haddix was a guest on the program a couple days ago and he said the one of the black aviators that he talked to said that their mom told them on the job "Shh." Zip it. Don't just be running off at the... M- sh- Let's see. He said, forget the professional consequences of talking to a reporter about January 6th. He said, I might tarnish... Uh, you go through battle together only to then start talking about the experience with someone who wasn't there. It didn't feel right. Mr. Fuller has that word tarnish in the word guide to not use darken, blacken. Again, the, uh, the it was a dark. They fell into the darkness supporting Trump. And then uh, this is tarnishing everything. What? Innocent. Dark is vile and criminal. Uh, let's see. White people not holding other white people accountable. We heard a lot of that in the Michael Swango book. And then hearing that again here, even under situations of violence against other white people, white people don't hold white people accountable. Um, I thought it was important just because I'm not a LinkedIn all star, but I know what it is. But his whole exchange. I mean, this is happening in 2020. Right. Or Excuse me. 2021. This is not, you know long time ago nobody's heard of LinkedIn or social media and that sort of thing I just found it interesting because he told us last week in great detail that he went to JMU in Virginia played football there won a championship on the football team uh, one of the best in the school's history and that they JMU has maintained support of him even after the uh, insurrection they supported his views and all that good stuff um why not use all of that your goodwill at JMU he said even this week that he used Facebook to stay in contact with his fellow alumni uh why not use LinkedIn and your college football playing experience to see if you could get like a little side gig like you could be you know doing summer football camps and all that stuff now maybe he already does that but that would seem like oh man you're a big black dude with a football championship. Like you could easily leverage that in all kinds of stuff. Foot, uh, like I said, scholarships and football camps and speaking engagements. And you do law enforcement. Like oh man, like yeah, all kinds of stuff. You could be on LinkedIn for lots of other things, not just your law enforcement career. That's why it kind of stood out to me that it was LinkedIn. Was LinkedIn system of white supremacy most to blame? Um, when they said they went through the rubble after everything happened on January 6th, went through the grounds. I did adventure outside at certain points to make sweeps of the grounds where we found bullets and firecrackers. The same way firecracker sounded a lot less innocent when Sue Klebold said, Oh, Dill, you know, he was into firecrackers and such, you know, way less innocent. White bomber man, white culture. I didn't even know. I guess I could have forgot, but I, it wasn't as salient to me at that time. I didn't even know that they had pipe bombs at January 6th too. He wrote about that in the first section of the audio. I went. They still talk. <laughs> they still have not tracked that. Who put these pipe bombs in Washington D.C.? Could have killed who? Did that talk about indiscriminate killing? Who did this? They got video still. They got video everywhere in Washington, D.C. So, of course, they got video of the suspect. Who did this? Mm. At the hands of persons unknown classified as white, I suspect. Uh, Let's see. He said Antonio came in, chapter five, one of the young officers, I guess, that uh, he, one of his trainees came in and said he had been injured the previous day. Like, dang, I guess it wasn't serious. I hope. I don't know. And he said, what do we got today? And he said it was something about his tone that irritated him. And he said, uh, he said, it was his tone that irritated me. I could barely form a coherent thought. And here was this kid, as anxious as ever, to start his day. I didn't even look at him. Just... Just hang out in the break room or something. I told him I didn't talk to him for the rest of the day. Something about that. Just I, I don't know. Antonio could be a white person. I suspect this is a black guy. I could be totally wrong. He doesn't specify. I suspect that I told you there are a lot of black people that work for the Capitol police. I think it's a black person. I could be wrong. I think this is a black dude. And this is what I mean about sympathy. This is a coworker. This is a coworker who you said was injured the day before. I don't know. What does that mean? Did he get hit with a fire extinguisher, bear mace, stabbed, shot at? Like, who knows? Hit with a baseball bat. Who knows? But he's here. He didn't take the day off. He didn't call out sick. He didn't quit. He didn't go AWOL. He came in. And he's, uh, what what does Sue Clebo call it? Gallows humor. What do we got today, man? Like, who knows? Are they going to be, they, you, you got your mask, bare mouth, all that. Money. Like, and it's so dismissive. Like, oh my God, we got this old no count. Get out of my face, man. And I didn't talk to him for the rest. That's why I say when I go back, Roseanne Boylan is a no count racist terrorist junkie. And it was, well, she, she you know, she fell for Trump's lies and she had been sober. And, you know, she was working i like, man, are you sick? See- she could have been one of the people that injured Antonio. And it sounded like you got more sympathy for her than your co-worker. Who didn't even call out, man? That's what I mean. Like <sighs> white people, most to blame, but dang, shout out to Antonio for not taking the day off and coming into work. Um, Let's see. Antonio wasn't a tragic figure, but Roseanne Boylan was Um, officer Eugene Goodman, who led these terrorists in the opposite direction. That's a black male. They got video of that. In many documentaries where you can see this, I, I remember that's one that I remember seeing where he uh, because these people broke in. That reminded me of Mr. Fuller when he talks about when you're trying to break out of prison. In this case, they're trying to break into a structure. But same thing, know where you're going. They said this place is like a maze, and a lot of these people broke in. They had no idea where they were going and, you know, where are we trying to get to and asking people for directions along the way and nonsense. That was, I mean, hey, shooting up along the way and all the rest of it, drinking all the rest of it, right on. Uh, but officer Eugene Goodman misled them away from where the white elected officials were where they could have you know did whatever led them to a, a vacant part of the building away from doing harm to other people Blackmail, hero done lots of interviews and such but that's what I mean like it would have been real different if officer Eugene Goodman had pulled out his pistol and started shooting these white people now they could have you know fired back shot him all that but I mean we we Lots of black dudes here. <laughs> like uh, Same way, like in the last, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, that's a black dude who killed Ashley Babbitt. That's what I mean. Like, even that, if that were highlighted, I think it might be a little. Eh. Captain Carnesha Mendoza, that is a black female, uh, where he gives lots saying that she was a hero that day and she was eating with her child. That's a black female. So, I mean, it's a lot of black people. A lot of black people. Uh, and would have to be DC, formerly Chocolate City. Uh, Let's see. Anything else? I want to make sure. I thought when he said he went to check Nancy Pelosi's office and she saw a huge box of kn 95 masks and he had a raggedy no count cloth mask like, wow, that is the disparity in PPE right there. Nancy Pelosi, white woman, powerful white woman, no sexism here. She got the good masks. He got the old raggedy, you know, ripped apart if you sneeze too hard, (laughs) much less if they put bear mace on it. Like this old worthless piece of tissue paper I got. Miss Pelosi, she got the good stuff. (laughs) uh, But oh, man, wait a minute. The comparison that he did, this is in the first section. This is way back in chapter three. uh, The first part of the insurrection where he says, imagine if I'm a gay woman or a man having to protect Congress people who I know don't like the fact that I'm gay and would do everything in their power to take away my rights if they could that whole comparison um, just what talked about for such a long time always investigate the metaphors and comparisons and such see if they're accurate in what's being compared I suspect you might have individuals who are voting against so-called gay rights and such which mostly they're talking about marriage and that type of thing Uh, some of these individuals might be so-called gay I don't know. I mean, it is possible. You have that sometimes where people lie and what have you. That is not the same for individuals classified as black. I cannot lie and pretend and all the rest of it. I mean, it's just that whole comparison. It's not the same at all. And even to have to put that out there sounds like it's written to appeal in the same way to make sure that we don't talk bad about Roseanne Boylan. And she, you know, fell into, she fell for the lies. And She was a tragic figure to not upset white people uh, in the same type of way to talk bad about Antonio he got on my nerves and he being an old grinning and goofy and all the rest of it the same type of way uh, in my opinion um, let's see oh he said that someone showed him a law enforcement badge there have been so many reports I think we've highlighted that on the cows over the years of law enforcement officers from across the continent and I mean officers here in Washington state many and not one or two like many of them and everywhere in between who went and participated in all and that's what I mean like what do you mean you are not just a citizen you're a law enforcement officer and people with military connections who went and participated in this what do you mean They fell for love. These are grown white people. These are not people who have mental defects and you know they were in a mental institution because there was something wrong with their thought processes. That's not the case at all. These people made choices. This is how I view the system of white supremacy racism. We didn't get our way and I know what to do. I'm a white defiant. We spent a whole year you don't tell me to wear a mask. You're not the boss. I'm a white woman. I'm a white man. I'm Ashley Babb. You don't tell me what to do. It, I connected it incidentally when they said that uh, Roseanne Boylan had her wacky theories, so called. Even that wacky. If it had been Al Sharp, then it wouldn't have been wacky if he had been talking about drinking somebody's blood. That reminded me of uh, Casey Bernal talking about killing her parents and the Ouija board and all that from Columbine. White culture. Wasn't the occult and all that? That was Jeff Dahmer, too, and uh, Mike Swango. All of the white culture we're talking about drinking somebody's blood i connected that with they got the crypt area at the Capitol where they were going to bury george washington There, like are you serious what kind of necrophilia is that we're supposed to walk past his corpse and then go past laws jesus christ uh pipe bomb already said something about Yeah, he got direct codification about all the plans that they had. White people knew about all of this in advance. There's lots of talk of that. Uh, I think that's most of. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's it for this week Uh, again. They have uh, testimony. It's available online, C SPAN. It might be on YouTube uh, as well. I just know C SPAN because I checked that one specifically. But if you are in a. <laughs> Michael Bird, that is the black male, Lieutenant Michael Bird, black male, shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. They have his testimony of what he saw, why he shot, why he. Self defense, all of that might be worth checking out. He was investigated repeatedly, cleared every time. They have testimony, Officer Eugene Goodman. You can see his testimony. They have other documentaries and interviews and what have you, him leading this crowd astray and what have you. Check out, see what he had to say. Uh, See if I can get the other black female officer's name in there too. Oh, I just said it, had it highlighted if I don't get it this time around, but you can check C-SPAN because all of this is available. And I am sure I am going to do that like between now and next week, see if I can maybe check out all of them or as many as I can. But that might be the sort of thing to even watch. If you have children to sit down and watch with them, what did they say? What did they, you know, observe on that day, especially the folks or uh, at least for uh, officer boy who actually fired a weapon, Yes. What did he have to say about all of that? Why did he feel like he needed to fire that? That's it. Captain Carnesha Mendoza. C-A-R-N-E-Y-S-H-A Mendoza. Black female as well. You can see her testimony. What did she have to say that day? Did she think it was racism? Did they call her a nigra? That is pretty common for <laughs> the black officers who were working on January 6th. Anywho... Uh, We will. We got two left, two sessions. You can let me know. Drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com. Would it be worth it to move to January 6th or don't confuse people get confused about the time anyway? Just keep it the same. And January four is close enough. We'll be mindful that next week is, I guess, three years from when all of this took place as we continue. But we will have two sessions left and then all done with Harry Dunn's standing my ground Uh, many folks pointing out the profanity as the... I mean, hey, I don't think we've read a book ever with this much profanity in it for the Catherine Massey Book Club. Ever. So it would stand out, you know, for that. Anywho, here tomorrow, same time, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hopefully worthy of your time and energy as we wrap up the 2023 calendar year. Sobriety would be best... You got... How are you going to riot and participate in an insurrection and not be sober? Come on now. End up over how do you overdose in the middle of the coup? Come on, man. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
7: nigga you're so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)